Alrighty, we're back, back in the New York mood, yes we are back, back in the New York groove, is it New York mood or groove, it's groove right, not that it particularly matters, and not that I'm not just killing time with some tunes before the arrival of Richard, I even came up with a little song to accompany the um, the title for tonight's gathering of experts, which is this. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. You know that song? Okay, how about this? Patriot missiles roasting on an open fire. Batteries nipping at your nose. I mean, it didn't take me that long to come up with that. Really, I should have spent more time to come up with something a bit more sophisticated or musical hello richard and are you are you are you scared you live in crazy times you missed my musical rendition of um the song chestnuts on roasting on an open fire okay uh, well if you, want, you want to do it again okay yeah okay here we go patriots roasting on an open fire Missiles nipping at your nose. That's as much as I've come up with so far. Missiles nipping at your nose. Okay. <laughs> Has a missile ever nipped anyone's nose? <laughs> yeah, highly, highly accurate. Missiles. They're they're anti. Yeah, nipples. Missiles. Nip, no, they they're they're anti missiles. They, they maybe they pass your nose as they're going in the air. <laughs> Well, that, I mean, the Patriot missile system, it's a missile system. It's just to shoot down stuff. Yeah, right, right. But so it's not, uh, I mean, it's almost euphemistic the way that they refer to those missiles. And we could talk about this later, I guess. But it's almost as though, like, they're, they're strictly defensive, right? They couldn't conceivably be used for any offensive purpose just because they're declared to be anti-missile systems or missile defense systems. As though... Like, it's inherent to the technology that they could not be used in any offensive manner, which is just not true at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. Well, why did you ask me if I'm scared? Is there some, something crazy oh, going, you don't on know the, what's going on on Twitter? Oh, yeah. I, I, I figured that might be what you're talking about. Is, yeah, why should I be scared? It's because I'm fascist. a big fan fascism. of posting updates on Elon Musk's um, private jet movements. I mean, it's fascism. I mean, we're losing. I mean, we, what, like six, seven journalists were suspended. I mean, uh, that's is it up to six or seven now? I saw. Oh, it's way more than that. It, it's it's. Let me really? see. It, look, here's a New York, recent New York Times article. Here they have they have them all listed. Uh, let's see. It's uh, okay. List them all. Hold on. Let me get my Kleenexes out while I uh, mourn. <laughs> you should play that music at the Oscars. The ones we've lost this year. <laughs> yeah, in memoriam. <clears throat> okay, Ryan Mack of the New York Times. Drew Harwell of the Washington Post, Aaron Ruper, we all know Aaron Ruper, Donnie yeah. O'Sullivan, also known as the video dunce. Uh, yeah, Donnie O'Sullivan at CNN. Oh, Matt not Bonnie Donnie Bill. O'Sullivan. I don't, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen Donnie O'Sullivan. Donnie O'Sullivan. That sounds like a uh, washed-up sitcom character. <laughs> Matt Binder of Mashable. I've seen that guy. He's very annoying. Ma- well, they by band that. Okay, well, I know him. I, I actually sort of know him personally. Uh, Tony Webster, an independent journalist. Okay, I know uh, him. Micah Lee of the Inter- Intercept, and the most horrifying suspension of all, the the most you know, the biggest blow to our democracy, Keith Olbermann. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
God. <laughs> and is, is that all seemingly because they posted links to the Elon Jet tracker well, the New York thing? T- the New York Times doesn't say that. It doesn't, it doesn't even, uh, you know... Uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, we don't know. Yeah, nobody knows. Well, aside from what they say, that could only be the conceivable reason, right? Well, unless, I mean, unless Elon Musk just decided he hates these people. Unless, like, those guys all started a uh, child trafficking ring within the past 24 hours. (laughs) And look, you have this New York Times article where CNN spokeswoman is like, says it's concerning, uh, New York Times, let's see, uh, like the New York Times, uh, the New, like spokesman for the Times, so, like the Times is quoting the New York Times spokesman saying like this is problematic and CNN, and so it's like they're the ones who are like you know this is what they do to other people. It's like you know your employee you get in trouble with your you get in trouble with your employer, and then they're like uh, you know this person spokesman says this, and like now the media is quoting the media about the media as like <laughs> suspension. Well, I mean, I think it should be said though, at least from my perspective, that as enjoyable as it might be to give them a taste of their own medicine, so to say. I, I, I actually do find it preliminarily problematic, although I wouldn't use the word problematic because it's, it's a tedious cliche and usually is tied in with all kinds of bizarre kind of uh, culture war uh, presuppositions. Um, but I don't know. I mean, based on what I can glean, and tell me if I'm wrong or if I missed something, what seems to have happened is there was some incident within the past day or two where Elon Musk says that his son, meaning the baby with Grimes, who's the, who goes by X, was in a car in Los Angeles someplace. And the car, according to Musk, got, you know, accosted or yeah, Somebody blocked the car and then jumped on the hood. And he posted a picture of this dude. Right. Did you see this? Like this, yeah, like but I, I, I couldn't quite tell who, who was taking well, some, that video. I don't know who was taking the video. Yeah, but somebody asked, "Is that the guy?" And then Musk replied, "Yes." So that's the guy, the guy in the mask who was in the car who was being videoed. He jumped yeah, on. To, he jumped on the hood of the car carrying the baby. According to Elon Musk, yeah, right. Uh, and then the LA, you know, was followed, last night car carrying little X. That's, I guess, a son. When I first read that, I thought he was talking about a rapper or something. (laughs) That would be a rapper. Yeah, Lil X. We had Lil X. It took me a moment for it to register that that's actually... I actually heard Grimes refer to their baby as X before. His full name is not X. It's like X in a whole bunch of symbols. Uh But in just common speech, they referred to him as X, apparently. So someone, someone replied, yeah, whoa, is that the guy who jumped in the hood? Uh, a guy replied who has 7,000 followers, and then Elon says, yes, yeah, right. So he says this guy is the one who, uh, is this, this, uh, yeah, so he must have jumped on the hood and then came back and, like, went back into his car. So is the claim that whoever this guy was used the publicly available information that gets That's what Elon curated by the Elon Jet account to track down the car and then, you know, imperil the baby i guess yeah well i mean a thought i have was even if it is potentially justifiable to come up with some rule that prohibits the promulgation of locational data like that it really does come across as a bit too impulsive and arbitrary 
if it's all centered on violations related to Elon Musk personally, like it's not really how you would ideally come up with like a universalizable rule for content moderation. Yeah. I mean, we're not even pretending, right? <laughs> we're not even pretending like universal rule. Like, I don't think anyone's even pretending it. It's like, you know, they, like, they used to pretend. And like, then Elon wanted to pretend that I feel like everyone's like, okay, we're not going to pretend anymore. It's just, you know, who can bet? Well, yeah. I mean, and, and that, I mean, and he didn't even pretend when he banned Kanye West, right? He basically said, okay, this is just a discretionary sort of snap judgment on my part that doesn't really have much bearing at all on any intelligible rule that anybody can reference and like understand what is actually prohibited. It was just pure discretion on his part, which is arbitrary. I mean, it might be better than the previous regime in that he's presumably going to be a bit less capricious in making these arbitrary discretionary adjustments. But then again, I'm not sure exactly if, you know, within 24 hours of this new location data rule being decreed, all of a sudden anybody who just posts a link gets banned? I mean, that seems like it's going a bit far. I mean, whatever. I mean, imagine like, can you imagine like under the old regime if like someone was tracking Taylor Lorenz and then someone jumped on the hood of our car? Like, assuming that happened, like, they would suspend everybody who, like, ever followed that person or liked their tweet. I mean, so it's like, I don't think that this is unusual. Like, this would happen. Well, if, if Taylor Lorenz had a private jet and one of the obligations when you have a private jet is that the government or the FAA collects your flight path data and it's publicly accessible and it got posted. I mean, yeah, maybe there would have been, maybe there been like a hyper-emotional out. reaction to it and like the claim that she was being threatened or something, but I don't know, I probably would have came on the side of not censoring the people who posted that information. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see the benefit, I mean, I don't see the benefit of that information for Taylor Lorenz or for Elon Musk or whatever, I mean, it's his company, he can, he can do that if he likes, right? I, I, you know, I don't think that that's like, I don't think that that's like a new rule that like nobody would, like nobody would understand that if it happened to Taylor Lorenz or if it happened to anybody. I think people, I think it would have been under the old regime, depending on, you know, if they liked the person or not, if it was like Kevin McCarthy or something, right, they wouldn't care. If it was like Taylor Lorenz, they would. I mean, that's just how this thing has, has worked. And since Elon Musk owns the company, obviously that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess one upside of it is that if everybody can just agree that it's 100% arbitrary and discretionary, then at least there won't be these phony appeals to some sort of neutral rule setting. Yeah, and then we can sort of have a more transparent discussion about the nature of content moderation rather than pretending that these um, objective criteria can be appealed to. Wow. Well, I mean, for whatever it's worth, I do kind of hope that it's not a permanent suspension of those accounts. Like, I think it would make sense to, if they are actually enforcing this new rule, which I kind of go back and forth on because it is true that, like, your address information, right, or even your phone number and stuff can be regarded as public information, right? I mean, you can access certain public databases like a voter registration portal. You can, but like why? Like, even like the yellow, I mean, even like the old yellow pages or whatever, right? And find people's address and, and uh, phone number. And yet it's still not allowed on Twitter or not allowed on other forums because it's considered doxing. I can see, I can see that being a reasonable trade-off. And maybe it could then also apply to like something such as um, private jet data. So I can see a, a potentially reasonable rule based on that prohibition, but 
to just come down so ruthlessly on anyone who even posts a link within 24 hours of a new rule being decreed after Musk said himself that he was going to allow this Elon Jet account to proceed as normal, and that was supposed to be a testament to Musk's commitment to free speech. Um, it's it, That is capricious in handing down the most, you know... Uh, Brutal possible punishments within such a short period of time to I mean, some pa- is, fairly look, high profile. Is, look, what is the, what is the what is the, I mean, you're too you're too an absolutist on free speech. I mean, you're you're. I mean, I don't. I like it's like often like data will be publicly available and like presenting it in a way can be criminal. Like if I like show you how to commit a crime and I like just be like, oh, Michael. Uh, you know, Michael, like Tracy, like I have your address or something. It's publicly available. And I'm like, oh, it's here. Oh, by the way, Michael Tracy once said this in- inflammatory thing. He doubted the wisdom of Solinsky or something, right? And, oh, and by the way, he lives <laughs> if I do get assassinated, I hope that's the hey, reason. <laughs> yeah, hey, Ukrainian Twitter, like, and tag, like, these Ukrainian girls who are, you know, these sort of Ukrainian women on Twitter who are always angry and, like, defending Ukraine's honor. Like, you know, that, that you can suspend that, even though all of that is publicly available. Well, that's what I was saying. Like, I'm not an absolutist in that I would reject it ever being a legitimately bannable offense to post someone's address just because the address information is technically public. I think it's reasonable for that to be against the terms of service on a, on a uh, public platform. Right. And so what's, what's, the, what's, the, so what's the, the difference between that and the uh, private jetted? Well, that was my point. I was saying it, it's, it's conceivable that there could be a legitimate rule divined from the prohibition on, for example, posting a technically public address on Twitter – like you could see that same rule also potentially applying to the private jet um, stuff. I, my 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 point was that for it for that prohibition, which was only decreed as I understand it, like within the past day or two, to be so ruthlessly enforced, all of a sudden, including against people who just posted a link, so not even posted the actual info. They're posting the link for, because they know what's going on, and they're purposely breaking the rules. I mean, they're not. Like, Is that what oh, they were doing? I think so. Why do you think they were suddenly all? I, 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 I don't know. I that closely, but I assume that they. That's called the strike. So the, the Streisand effect was trending, and I've been following this as closely. But what I gather happened, and someone could correct me if I'm wrong, is that people were like, "You can't stop this kid," and then like these people all started posting it specifically. To, they didn't just all happen to post this thing in the last twenty-four hours for no reason. It's like I mean, this is like close. This is like borderline, like actually it, it inciting the threat. So yeah, ruthlessly coming down on them. Yeah, I mean they're 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 baiting. I mean they're they're bait. They're they know the rule. They're not confused. I don't think if so, someone correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, um, but I, I think that's okay. Well, I mean, let's to... say let's say somebody posted the link for a reason not having to do with wanting to actively bait Musk or not wanting to like actively make a point in that sense, but just posted it because it's potentially newsworthy to show why this particular account got banned, right? Yeah, so you I... could you could you could imagine a circumstance where somebody posts it in like an explanatory way. And even if it was for baiting reasons, what we're supposed to now ban based on what the intent was behind the posting of yes, the link? Yeah, that's how it. Yeah, that's of course it's behind the intent behind. Of course, that's that's how this stuff works. I mean, it's like I accidentally like get Ukrainian female Twitter mad at you, um, or I try to like bait them into attacking you. Yeah, of course your intent matters in these things. Well, I don't know because I think it's I think it's against the terms of service to post my address. Whatever your intent is, even if you have like a positive intent and you want people to send me gifts, uh-huh. yeah, like you can't probably, post my address without my consent. <laughs> they would probably take the intent into into account. 
like how big of a suspension if they just deleted menu delete the tweet or they suspended you permanently of course they would they, I mean, that's what they do with these things and you have to take you can't you don't just go black letter law i mean you have to you always have to have like you know because no law you have no like clear rules can cover every situation so this these are i mean these are bad actors i mean like I'm, not, I'm usually not one who's like journalists are all trying to hurt people and get people killed but you know, assuming that, that, that assuming that I'm, you know, that, uh, what I think happened happened here. No, I mean this is clearly things that they should be, uh, you know, at least suspended for. Uh, I don't know. So a week ago, it would have been fine to post that same link, but now, yes, that's after how everything works. something it's happened, some some unverified incident. Maybe I mean we don't know 100 percent without any degree of certainty yeah. what exactly happened with this incident with the baby. I mean, it's just what he says. I mean, I don't doubt that it could have happened. He's a noteworthy enough figure that anything could happen. But still, I mean, it's not like there's a firm, conclusive proof of anything. So a week ago, no problem posting the link totally within the terms of service. Elon Musk himself even tweeted like a, a month or so ago that it's fine to post the Elon Jet data, not a violation. And then all of a sudden, he has an incident with yeah. the baby, allegedly, and there's a 180, and anybody who even posts the most direct, indirect reference to it just by sharing a link is banned permanently? I'm sorry, about, that is capricious. I don't know about permanent. First, I don't know about permanently. Well, I mean... Um, but yeah. the, I mean, they could the, undo it, but it's not like a, it's not a time limited suspension or so it would seem. Uh, OK, I mean, so for, first of all, of course, in, in like the circumstances change. So like, yes, after like an attack on somebody. So like if I, you know, like go back to this, maybe worn out uh, analogy, like if before the Ukrainian war, I said you insulted Ukraine, that would probably not be inflammatory. But then like Russia invades Ukraine and we all go crazy. And then it is, you know, inflammatory, right? So, like, that's obviously, like, it's all context-specific. You are upset at the, um, arbitra- like, the, uh, it's, like, capricious. I agree. It, you know, it is in a way, but, like, I think it's justifiable. And I don't think there's a way to, like, I don't think there's a way not to have capricious, uh, uh, somewhat, you know, to a large extent, capricious uh, censorship. I mean, I, I disagree with a lot of people. I think that there's there's always going to be content moderation. Like, you don't want those people, like, I don't know, maybe you do, but I certainly don't want those people like, oh, F you, you're ugly. Like, you just don't do anything but say that. I don't think that contributes to anything. There's no, you know, point in keeping people who just are, like, about insulting people. Doxing is, doxing is similar. Um, and there's going to be, like... But wait, hold on. When you say people... So you think that people who say, F you, you're ugly, should be banned. Not that you should have the ability to block or mute them, but they should actually be banned by uh, Twitter moderators? probably be... Okay, look, if you just say, F you, you're ugly, like, I wouldn't have a problem with that. That contributes nothing. <laughs> like, it, it contributes something to the district. Like, oh, you just think that because you're ugly, and all ugly men think that. Like, okay. Like, so anybody who makes sort of just a scurrilous insult against a public figure they don't like, then could just be banned? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, look, it's a private company. I don't have any, like, it's like... like okay, well, we know it's a private company. We're asking, like, what you're in my... Like, we were talking about what your and my preferred standards are for the private company. Yeah, I would, I mean, I would be, I would be fine with that. I would have, I would have, I would, if you're just asking me my sort of, uh, 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 my, my, my sort of like, you know, rules, I would have d- different tiers. Like I would have different rules for like an anonymous person versus a, uh, uh, a person who's like, you know, a person who's, uh, going out there under the real name, because I think that, you know, anonymous speech encourages bad behavior. So like, I would have a tiered system based on like that person's history and whether that person's anonymous or not. And yeah, I mean, like what, you know, okay. My preferred system wouldn't ban you forever for saying F you, you're ugly one time. 
it would maybe <laughs> boost you or, or something. Like if that's all you did, if you did a hundred tweets a day of doing that, like yeah, I would be fine with suspending you. You're just basically spamming. Or even if you even if you changed up the insults and wasn't after you're ugly, it was like a little bit different each time. But that's like all you were doing. Yeah, I would have no problem with that. Well, I mean, I'm not so much of a quote unquote free speed absolutist that I'm against any content moderation whatsoever. Or I'm like, I'm not one of the people who would disagree with you on that if those people do exist. And I don't think there are many people like that at all, really, because everybody would say, yeah, we need content moderation to prohibit child pornography and whatever, right? So it's, I mean, nobody's a, a true speech absolutist in terms of what can be posted on the internet. Um, However, I do think that my preference would be that to the extent that rules can militate against the exertion of arbitrary sort of discretionary subjective censorship power or banning power, those are the better rules than just leaving it totally up to the whims of the decision makers. Um, now, of course, I accept that it was, it's never going to be 100% perfect in its implementation or that they're, they're going to be able to fully remove any semblance of subjectivity from those content moderation decisions. But I do think rules that, to the extent possible, minimize the discretionary judgment of individual sort of tech officials, that's preferable, um, which is why it's good, I would suggest I, I had thought you know for us to basically wind down the bureaucracy where at Twitter where they had all these kind of convoluted theories for what harm means and who gets harm inflicted on them by what speech and kind of come up coming up with all these elaborate sort of um, content moderation philosophies that they used to making like more and more inscrutable decisions about who to ban, which culminated in Trump being banned on grounds that still make no sense and were kind of like you know illuminated by the one of the more recent Twitter files uh, releases from uh, Taibbi and Morris. You know, I, I might surprise you, and I might surprise some people here, but I don't have any problem with the uh, with the Trump banning. I mean, I think that <laughs> okay, I, yeah, I remember. I, I think that's January 6th. You don't have any problem was, with it? I mean, I mean, so what does that mean? Like you actively supported it or you just don't think it was think bad within, enough I to object to it? The, I think given January 6th, I think it's within the reasonable discretion of a company. Like under my ideal system, would it be bad or not? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe not. But I don't think it's like that. I don't think it's the greatest crime against humanity that, you know, Twitter's ever committed. Oh, I'm all that. I mean, that's a... I don't think it, okay. I'm, I'm not. I'm, yeah, it's not the greatest. Nobody's it's saying it's the greatest crime against humanity. That's it's that Twitter has ever committed. I think they've had suspensions that are less justified than that. Given you know, I, I just okay. I well, however that. more or less justified other suspensions might have been, and however, wherever you place the banning of Trump on the crime against humanity scale. Oh, it's not a, no banning is a crime against no, no banning or you know not banning is a crime against humanity. Uh, but I think that, you know, it's reasonable given the, you know, the events of January 6th. I think it was like, he was clearly told those people, go, go to the Capitol. Like, I'll walk with you. He did it. And then they like, they went in there and they ransacked the place. And this is, you know, this is legitimate, legitimately incitement to violence. I don't have any, uh, I don't have any, uh, uh, you know, problem with that really. I mean, I just like, I just, so you don't have any problem. So you don't have any problem with this little committee of Twitter nitpickers sitting somewhere in San Francisco just, or wherever the hell they are deciding when it is that the president 
ought to be expelled from his primary communications platform when his quote-unquote incitement reaches a standard that they deem to be severe enough that they're going to pull the plug. Like, that doesn't you, strike you as arbitrary or worrisome you, at all? You have – you're hung up on the idea that, like, small groups or one person is going to make the decision. I think that's inevitable. I mean, like, if you study, like, law, right, it's like, oh, people should follow the letter of the law. But what you find out is, like, you get a little you – you just do a little bit of study or if you go to law school is that, like, the law doesn't cover, like, so much stuff. But there's stuff, like, it obviously, like, needs to cover or, like, things are not going to work. And then, like, you need interpretation and judges need to cover. And they can go too far in this. But, like, to a certain extent, they have to sort of make the rules that it's sort of arbitrary. In our system, it just happens to be the judge, right? Um, and so it's like I don't think I think there are, are I think there are rules and there are well, standards I, and like everything is inherently fuzzy and like someone's going to make a decision and it's going to be like arbitrary at, at some level. It's uh, people are going to be able to argue. Like I just think that's inevitable. I'm not fundamentally hung up on it being one person or a small group of people making the content moderation decision because you want like the rules it, to be consistent. Yeah, or I want it to be – I mean I, you could imagine one group or a small group of people coming up with a set of universalizable, consistently enforced rules that are rational and don't entail like dr- drastic usurpations by corporate actors of public speech. Okay, um, so like so if, if those rules – if those more rational – and evenly applied rules were decreed by a small group of people, my problem wouldn't be that they were decreed by the small group of people. It would be the rules themselves. So I'm not hung up at bottom on the idea of the power being in the hands of a small number of people, although I do think that the power being in the hands of the small number of people is all the more reason why those decision-making powers ought to be scrutinized and why, to the extent possible, it should be advocated that, that the most reasonable, rational rules are for it to limit the amount of discretionary judgment that they are needing to apply on a day on a, like a regular basis. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's impossible. Okay, so like let's say you have rules that say no incitement to violence. Like, does that sound like a specific enough rule for you? Well, no, because there's a whole. There's like endless case law over what that means exactly. Well, so what kind of? I, well, yeah, I mean that's the point. They're like all words are like that. So like, what would you like? What 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 like? How would you say? Like, what would you? Well, what Elon Musk it? said. I mean, Elon Musk has hinted at this. Um, what he's basically, at least in the past, indicated that what he wanted to do in terms of content moderation was just make it so that whatever is legal speech is permissible. With okay. a couple of exceptions, such as, I guess, doxing or certain maybe child exploitation stuff, because, I mean, there might be some stuff that's within the letter of the law that are still going to be not permitted. So there's, I mean, of course, there's always going to be a bit of a gray area, but if to the largest extent possible, your ideal vision for a content moderation kind of regimen is to remove your own individual discretion and make the rules as neutrally applicable as possible in accordance with whatever the law of the land is, and then allow for yourself to have to intervene every now and then when there are these edge cases or when there's a genuine gray area where the law doesn't most exactly cover, then I think that's reasonable. Um, But the idea that that's what was done in the wake of January 6th with Trump is ridiculous. I mean, that was a hugely consequential intervention. I mean, 
Nobody has even argued, really, that anything that Trump did on January 6th has been a violation of the law, at least in terms of his public conduct, like the speeches, the tweets. Nobody has argued that that's unto itself a violation of the law. Maybe some people can come up with a convoluted theory based on private conduct and private conspiring or whatever, but at least in terms of what was known on January 6th, nobody's made that argument. Twitter took it upon themselves to say, look, now we're the rule makers and we get to determine what everybody can hear from in the country from the duly elected president, whatever you may think of him and whatever happened at the Capitol. And I think that was a major um, encroachment on just common sense and, I guess, quote unquote, norms. And to, to the point that, yeah, I did object to it. <laughs> no, this is funny, norms. Uh, the, uh, um, so, like, that, that, that idea about everything legal is, should be allowed. Like, Elon Musk, he, uh, he walked away from that very quickly. Like even before he took over the company, he was saying, "Oh, he was promising advertisers like it's not going to be a you know what do you call it a postmodern healthcare or something." Uh, you know, he he walked away from that because he realized it wasn't feasible. Like he wouldn't have to have a business model. He wouldn't have advertisers. So like okay, so like that's one thing he said a long time ago, but he's not sticking to that standard. Um, and so, like, once you have the moderation, I just think it's inevitable that you're going to have, you know, arbitrary decision-making. I think you're going to have a decision-making. I think if you define things, like, incitement to violence, you define, like, you know, like, threats. Like, that's not clear what that is. Doxing is not clear. We just talked about, like, these gray areas, whether it's publicly available information or that publicly. So, like, you want to think against doxing, but you don't know exactly, you know, what that is. Um, so, you know, whatever. Like, I, you know, there's some cases I can look at and say, okay, that's really unfair. That's really ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, this, like, Ryan Mack, uh, like, for, you know, like, I think that's, I think the easy cases, I mean, these easy cases where they're, you know, they're the private jet stuff, I have no problem with that. I think you have to do that. Uh, even if it was Taylor Lorenz, I it would be. But why do you have to do it? I mean, and the, th- the the problem with the Taylor Lorenz analogy is that it's not it wasn't ta- it wouldn't have been Taylor Lorenz herself making the rules in accordance with her preferences, in accordance with what she perceives to be a threat. It would have been others, you know, maybe making the rule on her behalf. Here, it's just rulemaking by decree and by whim in relation to the actual owner. I mean, so it's it's another sort of level of caprice. And and arbitrariness. Well, how's um, it different from, how's like it if different Taylor Lorenz was the CEO, then you'd have the, an analogy. Why why does it bat worse that he's the CEO? Like he could be threatened because he's the CEO if it's if if that's what they're doing. Well, because if rules are just being decreed primarily with him personally in mind all the time. I mean, it's or, be, or in it's response gonna... to events that center around him, then yeah, that is more capricious and arbitrary than it would be if. Some rule were were come up with that at least purported to be universal or not centered on one particular individual, as in the case of Taylor Lorenz. I mean, he he made a new rule this week, apparently in reaction to some event that happened with his baby. Yeah, I mean, he made a rule. He made a rule like Twitter would do stuff that wasn't directly the rules. I think it's just proving that whoever owns Twitter. Like is gonna you're gonna be able to make these complaints. I just I think it's inevitable. Sure. I think if Michael Fierce owned Twitter, like he would either have to be a free speech absolutist <laughs> and not ban anything, or he would like you'd be like the other Michael Tracy, you know, you know Michael Tracy too would be complaining and like have all these good reasons too. I just think this is inevitable. I, I, I don't think there's anything we can do about it, and I, I don't think there's I don't, like and, and even like I don't I don't I don't have a problem with Elon Musk doing because like if he you know I don't think he has 
still an obligation to allow that stuff. I don't think Twitter had an obligation to allow Trump on. I mean, they did some, they've done some suspensions that I thought, you know, they suspended me a few times. I thought it was stupid. It was unfair. Um, but, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, I, I don't have a delusion that there's going to be an objective rule that's going to be applied consistently in every situation. Like, I just think that's too much to hope for. Not even like, just like, as like a realistic political matter, but as like just a matter of logic. I just yeah. think there's, there's well, too many... I mean, I don't have a hope that there could be, in every case, uh, a totally non-discretionary, non-subjective rule that could be evenly applied. I guess my hope would be that a rational basis test could be applied to most content moderation decisions. (laughs) And I'm not sure that's the case. I I mean, maybe that's a better way of thinking about it in that, like, I guess I'm not a judge. I mean... I'm not objecting 100% on principle to Trump being banned because there's some crazy theoretical scenario where maybe it would pass a rational basis test. I guess my issue is more that it didn't pass the rational basis test for January 6th. Like if Trump, I mean, if like if you could, if if in order to prevent Trump from literally launching nuclear war that would have destroyed humanity, you could ban him from Twitter. Like okay. if, if, if like okay, this is a crazy hypothetical, but if we're in law school mode, even though I never went. Um, let's say that in order to launch a nuclear war, Trump had to tweet a certain code. That's the only way he could launch the nuclear war. Okay. And he's threatening to do it in 30 minutes. Twitter then bans him. Okay. I'd be hard-pressed to say that that banning wasn't justified if it thwarted Trump's ability to launch a nuclear war. Uh-huh. Right? So, there's, so that would pass a rational basis test, potentially. Um, so... I guess that's ultimately the criteria that I'm using to evaluate these banning decisions. It's like a rational basis test that is going to be, I guess you're right, inherently sort of uh, circumstantial. Okay, what if if in half an hour he's not going to launch a nuclear war, but a conventional war? And the only way he can communicate with his generals, the only way they'll take his orders is if they hear it on Twitter. Would you bat him for that, or it has to be a nuclear war? Um... (laughs) Well, I mean, it depends how destructive the conventional war is going to be. I mean, if it could, yeah, it's silly. Right? Of course, it's subjective. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It would be circumstantial. Yes. The what the evaluation would be. It would be yeah. subject to like a you know a uh, evolving rational basis assessment. Yeah. So and I don't think I, I don't think it I don't think it passed the smell test for him to be banned on account of January sixth. Okay, so we're just arguing about where the line is and where we agree that it's arbitrary. January, so maybe we just disagree about the importance of January 6th, which is just, I mean, this is just a different discussion, but okay. I mean, I, I mean, think do you think, agree. I mean, would you have argued for Trump? I mean, do you think that on the same, on whatever ground you think it was warranted for Trump to be banned post January 6th, do you think he should face criminal penalties? Um, like if he incited violence, if he incited a mob that ransacked the Capitol, do you think he's criminally liable? So uh, for the first amendment, it's very hard to, uh, get people for inc- like incitement has to be very very direct. So like, well, he was impeached for incitement. Yeah, well, impeachment is different because impe- right. like, impeachment is is, politi- is inherently political. Well, right. could, so yeah, but so, you like, could make it. I mean, you, I mean, some enterprising lawyer out there, I'm sure, could make a case that notwithstanding the first amendment, think, he violated some law. I, I, yeah, they maybe they could try, but I don't think it would be a very good case. Um, I think the. Uh, there might be some stuff having to do with like pressuring the Secretary of State in Georgia uh, to like you know change the election results. I think there was something there that he might get prosecuted for that. Still, that's still uh, yeah. There's still well, leave, leave that aside. Let, let's say you could, let's say you Richard 
could use your enterprising lawyering skills to come up with a case to prosecute Trump, not because of some phone call he made to the Secretary of State of Georgia, but because of his conduct on January 6th, the same conduct that you're saying warranted him being banned from Twitter. If you could come up with a case that passed every barrier erected around the First Amendment and could lead to a successful prosecution, do you think that should be pursued? Um, do I think it should be pursued? Um, if it was, le- if uh, okay, if it was like a legally good case, um, and there was prosecutorial discretion, uh, yeah, I think I think I, I think a prosecutor could pursue that, especially pr- given prosecutorial discretion. You want to deter the worst behavior. Right. So when the president goes, you know, I want to go over there and I want to, you know, uh, you know, we're going to stop them from certifying the election results. Yeah, I think I think it's good. We have the laws we have now that it's very hard to convict someone for incitement. I think that's good. So no, under the current laws, but like if the laws were different, I guess is what you're asking me. Um, Yeah, this would this case would make sense. So if you were in the Senate when that second impeachment was, uh, you would have voted to convict. Oh yeah, I would have convicted Trump. Yeah, I, I think I bet there a lot of Republicans now wish that they would have convicted. <laughs> they would be he would be able to run right now for again. So I bet you they they sort of wish they did. But yeah. Well, uh, having read those articles of impeachment and having sh- seen how they were basically, but you know, you know, debasing the not- whole idea of incitement to violence. I mean, I would have acquitted. Ju- I, I would have acquitted on speech grounds. <laughs> I think. Yeah, impeachment is not. I mean, impeachment is not. I mean, it's there's no standards. I mean, impeachment is right. crimes or misdemeanors or whatever you whatever. Talk about arbitrary. That's even more arbitrary than Twitter. That's the point. That's the point. I think the I think the founders like. I mean, I think they realized it's just like they threw their heads up and said, you know, whatever. Congress is just going to have to decide because you can't say like every possible thing that the president might do that like makes it should be kicked out of office. I mean, there's a million things you could think of, right? So they left it to Congress. I mean, I think that's that's wise. Okay, um, <laughs> let's get off of this uh, subject for a moment and just touch on a little bit of Ukraine stuff, and then we'll go to the callers. Um, what do you make of this uh, decision that is apparently in, on the verge of being finalized for the U.S. to send Patriot missiles to Ukraine? Uh, of course, we're all in the dark as to what precisely that would entail in terms of the logistical maintenance of these complex missile systems. I noted uh, last night that there was a story in March in this outlet, Defense One, which is one of these many defense industry publications, on why the U.S. was resisting entreaties at the time to give Ukraine these Patriot missiles. And according to an official speaking on background, a Pentagon official who wasn't quoted by name, Here's what he said in uh, March of 2022. There's no discussion about putting a Patriot battery in Ukraine. In order to do that, you have to put U.S. troops with it to operate it. It is not a system that the Ukrainians are familiar with. And as we have made very clear, there will be no U.S. troops fighting in Ukraine. Now, I guess it could be argued or it could be suggested that uh, there are now enough Ukrainian operators who are, have mastered the complex proprietary software of these Patriot systems that they can operate it themselves without any U.S. assistance inside Ukraine. But I don't know. I'm a bit doubtful of that, and I at least need to see evidence for that because um, much of the time, or I, I, don't ha- I haven't done a fully comprehensive review, so I'm happy to be corrected if people have more information than me, but based on what I've no- seen and read, when the U.S. dispatches this this uh, Patriot missile 
equipment or technology around the world to, quote, allied states, in combat situations, the U.S. tends to be the one who's actually operating the systems, right? The last time that Patriot missiles were actually used in a combat scenario was in the United, United Arab Emirates in uh, January of this year, believe it or not. Now, if you're wondering what was the actual combat scenario that led to U.S. forces in the UAE using Patriot missiles to shoot down some projectile, um, I'm also curious about that, and I don't know the full details because it wasn't really revealed by anyone as far as I can tell. Uh, but what was revealed is that it was U.S. forces operating the missile system in the UAE the last time these Patriot missiles were used. And we have people on record in March or in earlier throughout the spring and summer of this year declining appeals by Ukrainian officials to send Patriot missiles on the grounds that it would require a direct U.S. troop presence in Ukraine. And now all of a sudden we're to believe that um, – the pleas of Ukraine officials have gotten so persuasive that whatever concern existed prior to December is no longer operative and, you know, go full steam ahead with the Patriot missiles in Ukraine. I mean, it's just another one of these. I hate to use the word so often because it sounds like a cliche and I even get mocked sometimes on the Internet for being too repetitive about it. But I'm sorry. I don't know how else to put it. It is an escalation. It's an escalation in the caliber of the weaponry that the U.S. is sending to Ukraine. I mean, even in the New York Times uh, this week when they were reporting on this potentially finalized deal to send the Patriot missiles, they were saying it's indicative of the, quote, deepening commitment, deepening military commitment that the U.S. has to Ukraine. That's an escalation. That's an intensification of the military effort, right? And it just... I know it's like frog boiling in the water. I mean, nobody uh, nobody seems to notice the gradations of escalation anymore <coughs> because I don't know. Everybody has to cheer for giving Ukraine everything they need at any time, and you know it's sort of like what we've talked about, where uh, you know from that New Yorker article from when was it September, where the defense minister of Ukraine is saying, "Look, don't worry about these." claims that we're not going to get from the U.S. what we need. They've always said that, but then we wear them down over time, and then we, have, we finally get the thing, right? This is another example of it. So who's to say what's next? Michael, you there? Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah, so I finished, I finished have... my spiel. I was, I was handing it over to you. Oh, oh okay. Um Okay, boy. No. See you, man. I want right, sorry, good stuff. Why don't um, you make him his own um, call-in account? <laughs> I probably should. He could just start yelling at me from the yeah, from uh, from there. We could at least keep him off the stage. Uh, yeah, the uh, so uh, what are they saying? Like about the um, about the thing about the um, about the the troops now? How are they saying the Patriot missiles are going to be operated? Um, it's not clear. It's, there hasn't been an official announcement yet, as far as I know. I think there are references, there are references being made to apparently training going on in Germany of Ukraine troops to be able to operate these missiles. But, I mean, at the same time, you have American officials that have been on the record within the past number of months saying that there would have to be an American troop presence in order to operate the missiles. And, you know, in the UAE, where they also have American deployed Patriot missiles stationed and are used in combat situations, it's the U.S. using them. It's not that, that they just trained up a bunch of UAE soldiers to use them on their own.
Yeah, I mean, but we don't we don't know how plausible it is. And same in Poland. I mean, I actually went to when I went to Poland when the war first started. I went and got, I went and looked myself directly at the Patriot batteries that had just been installed at this airport in Yeshiv. You know, it was like sixty or so miles from the Ukraine border, and a whole new American military installation had been erected around them to operate the missiles. It wasn't as though they just handed it over to Poland to operate on their own volition. It was they were still U.S. operated, so I don't know what these arrangement is supposed to be for these Ukraine deployed missiles. Um, it hasn't been divulged yet, but I'm just kind of giving reasons why I'd be skeptical that all of a sudden they're going to be operated 100 percent autonomously by Ukraine. Mm. Well, some uh, someone just said in the comments they heard suggestions it will be Romanian. Uh, and Polish troops, not U.S. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, is it impossible that they could train? You know, it's been the years, the the war's been going on for uh, 10 months now. Is it impossible that they could uh, could have trained Ukrainians by now or they could train Ukrainians? Um, I don't know, like, how long would it take to train on this thing? How hard is it? I mean, it doesn't seem like, if you focus, it doesn't seem like it should be impossible, right? Um, I, guess, I guess it wouldn't be impossible, but, you know, the, these aren't just any ordinary weapon system. They're proprietary U.S. weapons that are plugged into the broader American missile defense system. Um, and so maybe they have some kind of carve-out working with mm. Ukraine for, so they can use them autonomously. I don't know. But, right, you know, so, you'd well, think they could, they could have trained Polish troops to use them as well, right? But it's, instead it's the U.S. using them in Poland. Well, I mean, it might have been just easier because it's they want. But what is your is your thing is your uh, concern here uh, that it's going to be a way to sneak American troops into Ukraine? Is that what you think is going on? Well, I mean, sneak is not the way I would put it. <laughs> just, uh, my my point is that it's an intensification of bilateral U.S.-Ukraine military ties beyond anything that's been seen before um, because it's just a higher caliber of weaponry coordination and it's a very exclusive sort of prize system um, that the U.S. maintains and only deploys very selectively. Um, so, I don't know, I just, I guess my, my ultimate point would be to be, uh, it seems advisable to be wary or to be uh, cognizant of to what extent this sort of deployment would actually entail the direct operational involvement of the U.S. Yeah. So, so I mean, the question is, do you think that the, I mean, do you think that, so wasn't there, wasn't it, uh, there was uh, were there already reports of UK troops there? Am I remembering that correctly? Were they were there UK troops doing something in Ukraine after the war started? Well, I mean that's another thing that happened this week. Um, I was just on uh, George Galloway's show yesterday talking about it. Um, yeah, I mean there's only one newspaper really that reports ever even in just these very vague incremental installations on the apparent presence of UK special forces in Ukraine. This was the Times newspaper first reported in April that there was a quote-unquote training presence of UK special forces inside Ukraine. So not just guarding the embassy or escorting diplomats, but actually doing training missions of uh, unspecified nature in Ukraine itself, 
Um, then in August, this guy Tom Rogan uh, had a little dispatch for the Washington Examiner, believe it or not. And he's a British journalist, and he reported that British forces were actually fairly close to the front line in the south, um, but it, very, it was very nonspecific. And then this week, the Times again uh, had a story where some British, some sort of senior British military official gave remarks where he said that the British Special Forces had been engaged in politically and militarily sensitive, quote-unquote, discrete operations inside Ukraine. Um, so there's more, at least, uh, it was the first time that it was publicly acknowledged by a military or uh, political official in the UK that there had been this presence. So that's what is known, I guess, at this point. Um, Actually, on top of that, no, I forgot. In July, I did speak to a congressman, Mike Waltz. And I talked to you about him before. I talked to him at that Trump America First thing uh, policy summit in D.C. where he was saying that he wanted the U.S. to emulate the U.K. in having an on-the-ground troop presence inside Ukraine to better monitor the provision of weapons throughout the country, to better track the weapon systems being dispatched into Ukraine. So one of the grand ironies is that because there's no monitoring system set up, in order to do even the slightest semblance of monitoring, you actually have to send in troops or escalate the intervention even further in order to do the monitoring. And that's what the U.S. is also apparently contemplating. Now, there's, there, uh, there was an NBC article in the past week or so about how the U.S. is, or the Pentagon is contemplating whether to add to the, quote, handful of troops apparently associated with the attache in Kiev, although we don't know what the precise command structure is here, um, to do unspecified weapons monitoring, which would be a boots-on-the-ground deployment. And there was also an Intercept article about Biden having invoked this um, secret presidential authority to allow for the covert deployment of U.S. ground troops to Ukraine or special forces. So, I mean, there's, there's mounting evidence that there is a on the ground troop presence, right? Um, and then, you know, you take that in concert with now them sending the most sophisticated weapons uh, or missile system yet to Ukraine that requires a lot of intensive uh, defense and uh, operational control. And it's kind of, it all leads to a point of just, again, as the New York Times put it, deepening American military commitment to Ukraine. So, I don't know. And apparently they're going to... Uh, sneak the uh, Ukraine's funding supplemental bill into the whole broader omnibus bill. It's like to fund the entire government before Christmas. So they're going to, so Schumer said this a few days ago, they're going to have the Electoral Count Act reform, which is supposed to like curtail the possibility of another January 6th, but ref by reforming the manner in which the vice president selects, uh, can elect to um, seat electors for the Electoral College, that is going to be in the same legislative package that everybody votes on all at once as the Ukraine supplemental funding bill and then the funding bill for the entire rest of the government, which is just absurd. But anyway, I'm ranting. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, I mean, this is um, on the sort of escalatory ladder. I mean, it's, uh, 
you know, it's defensive weapons. I know you're saying they can be used offensively. That that's right, they can, but it's not going to like add to Ukraine's offensive power. I mean, there's obviously a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, warfare uh, being conducted on Ukraine's uh, electrical grid, on its energy supply. Um, so I don't know. Like this is like this is probably not the escalation that's going to lead to the you know the showdown between NATO and Russia or nuclear war. Um, but it is another demonstration that, uh, uh, yeah, whatever they say, like the, the trend of history, like bends towards giving Ukraine everything. Um, it bends that, it bends that way. Right. But there's still, I mean, like we, we, this is just the same conversation we had like the last few weeks, you know, there's the, I think tanks, I think fighter jets, I think, you know, ICBMs, I think these are the big sort of, uh, these are, these are the big sort of, uh, you know, uh, things that are game changers that we're looking for. And we're still sort of waiting to see, uh, if that happens. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the Patriot missiles are pretty close to a game changer. I mean, I'm not saying it's the only game changer or it would be the decisive game changer and leading to a broader war or anything. But, you know, if you had asked me in March, what are some of the potential game changers here that you can envision that the U.S. It's a defensive weapon, right? So but what does that mean? But that's a nonsense distinction. What does that even mean? I mean, it can be used for offensive purposes if it's being used by Ukraine. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, everything Ukraine does right now can be justified as "quote unquote" defensive. I mean, they they justify the the drone strikes three hundred miles inside Russia as defensive. It's never been an intelligible distinction at all because weapons that are, are only used for supposedly defensive purposes can also be used for a quote unquote offensive purposes. So it's almost like a distinction without a difference. I've never bought that. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. So could you could. So I don't know about the um, technical technical aspects of this. This is a mobile system that say Ukraine. Could no, no, take- it's not a mobile system. It's not a mobile okay. system. It's a stationary system. Okay, but it and can that, shoot weapon. It can shoot missiles into Russia. Or Crimea, or wherever. It has the range to shoot missiles into Crimea, or, or well, yeah. I mean, depending on the depending on the type of missile used. I mean, that. But but it's it's um the the point is it's supposed to be like uh, the missiles are automated, right? So once you fire a Patriot missile, it then automatically locks onto the target and can hit it. And they call it defensive because. It's supposed to be used for incoming projectiles or incoming ballistic okay. missiles or whatever, right? But there's no reason why the same technology can't be used for to launch a so-called offensive strike using the same automated technology. Well, what, did you, what did you use? Uh, what did you use the wep- offensive weapons designed for offensive use rather than repurposing the defensive? It seems like the offensive weapon would be better than the defensive weapon repurposed, right? But yeah, but it's it's a distinct. I mean. That, uh, it's a distinction without a difference because obviously they're, they're, not gonna, they're, 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 they're never going to present these things as offensive because that seems aggressive, right? Well, no, they gave them high Mars and they present that as offensive, right? Do they? they, no, they we don't. know this. I don't know that. Yeah, we know. We know that high. Nobody's doubting that high Mars go into. Uh, they hit behind Russian lines and they hit uh, Russian ammo and they've killed generals. I mean, they've admitted this through basically admitted it through. Uh, but they don't the that they don't admit that means that they're they're offensive weapons. They say that everything every weapon that Ukraine could ever use is defensive because okay. they're ultimately fending off a Russian invasion. Okay, but like there are things that are actually defensive. Like, you don't think there's any distinction? Like okay, if there's something that just shoots drones that are coming at Kiev, right? And Kiev isn't even the front line. It's like hitting civilian infrastructure. Like you don't say you could say that's like defensive. 
again, I think in terms of the actual equipment, I mean, they, you could imagine it being used for a defensive purpose, right? So in that they, just in the nick of time, shoot down a ballistic missile that otherwise was going to obliterate Kiev. Yeah, that could be reasonably called defensive. But I just don't think there's anything inherent to the technology that makes it defensive. Uh, I think there is something inherent to the technology because it's a, it's a, I think there are these, the defensive and the offensive missiles work differently. Now they can be repurposed, but it's like not the most efficient thing. If you have offensive weapons, you use offensive weapons. You only use the defensive weapons if you're, you know, there's reports that you, uh, Ru- Russia is, has used defensive missiles as offensive missiles. And the idea is that they wouldn't do that unless they're running out. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's like you would use the thing that is designed to be used and they have the thing. I mean, the high bars was a big deal because the high bars wasn't off, you know, was clearly an offensive weapon and they use that. So getting the Patriot missiles, I mean, it's like just an indication of something, but it's, it's, uh, it doesn't add to Ukraine's offensive firepower or it does very, very slightly. I mean, you have offensive okay. weapons. If, you, if you're worried about something being used off, I mean, you have high bars. That's the big one. And then you have just ammunition, like tons and tons of ammunition the U.S. is applying. So you already have that. Right, so that you know, we crossed that. We've crossed crossed that threshold a while ago, right? And this is something designed, at least for uh, uh, for de- for defense to defend against incoming missiles, right? Yeah, I'm just quickly trying to Google here what I'm sure I could find in an instant, which is an example of um, defensive being the label slapped on HIMARS. In that, or, or in other words, nobody admits that these are not. But everyone knows what high bars were. Like, even if they said it's defense, even if they use that word, like, everyone knows what high bars are. Like, you know, it's just a word game. Well, this is, like, actually not just a word game, because if you say defensive, it's like... Okay, here's... I mean, sorry, sorry. Here's uh, here's Colin Cowell, Undersecretary for Defense... uh, Pentagon official, okay? These are critical capabilities to get the Ukrainians to repel the... Russian offensive in the east. One such need is the high-mobility high artillery rocket system, HIMAR, which responds to Ukraine's top priority risk. The system will provide Ukraine with additional precision and targeting range. The Ukrainians have given us assurances that they will use the system for defensive purposes only. So HIMARS are classified by US, <laughs> the U.S. and Ukraine as defensive weapons. You're just, I mean, the HIMARS are not anti, uh, they're not anti-missiles. HIMARS are to hit things on the ground, right? So why do they call them defensive weapons? Because it's just, I mean, it's just a word, but because the whole world war is defensive. You're right. That's like, it's always sounds better to say defensive weapon. It doesn't mean that defensive doesn't have any, like we're switching between talking about like what objectively it is. I was just talking about objectively. I just got to tell you. Okay. So August 19th, right? Here's the name of the press release. Additional defensive weapons to be shipped to Ukraine. And it's all about HIMARS. But you are, but you, you're, you're like changing the conversation. I'm talking about just like objectively, like is this a big threshold or not? And you're okay. you're going back and you're saying they say defensive for high bars and they say defensive for this. So like the same thing. You're like okay, whatever they say, that's like not related to the original point. Um. What is related to the original point? Because you can imagine the HIMARS being used strictly for a quote-unquote defensive purpose akin to shooting down a ballistic missile that's headed for Kiev. But that's, but not, what not, HIMARS, that but that's not what HIMARS are for. HIMARS are made for hitting things on the ground. Right, in a defensive posture, according, to, what posture. Was, according to how they were being presented to the public. I, mean, I don't know. Um, well, okay, maybe it's... I, I, I just think that... Um, 
I, I take your point. Uh, I just think there's a lot of conceptual fuzziness in this offensive versus defensive sort of distinction. And either way, even if you want to call it strictly defensive, it's still a major escalation in the military interoperability between the U.S. and Ukraine in a hot war zone to the point where, if, again, if you had asked me in March, what would be one of the potentially more threshold-crossing uh, pieces of equipment that could be dispatched to Ukraine, it would have been the Patriot missiles because the Patriot missiles, it almost seemed impossible that that could actually be deployed to Ukraine because it would yeah. have been too much of, a, of an extensive... Uh, logistical arrangement to actually carry out. But anyway, um, all right, let's go to some callers. Uh, Heidi, you're up. Hi, yeah. I was wondering if um, you guys had heard what uh, McGregor had to say about it. And uh, I don't know. I guess I'm curious if you consider him a reliable source. Um, I'm always open to hearing what he has to say. Uh, I'm not sure I would take what he says is gospel in every instance, but uh, I think he has a worthwhile perspective, at, at least. Uh, what did he say about this? Well, uh, the main point that I was going to make, and this may be naive on my part, <laughs> but um, I and, and I don't disagree with you that it is an escalation, but I think it's a political theater escalation. Um, the The point that McGregor made was that it's going to be mostly ineffective because Russia is totally prepared for this. They're going to be able to get Ukraine to shoot them all uh, without actually doing any damage, plus the fact that they are extremely expensive. So I kind of look at it as the beginning of the end. Um, I'd like to think that. Uh, hopefully the American people are going to get sick of financing this uh, war that um, is is not going to accomplish anything close to what they want or claim they want or or whatever. And so, I, you know, like I said, it may be naive on my part, but, you know, that's what I'm keeping my fingers crossed for. Also, I wanted to say the thing about Elon. I think he's it's all PR. The guy is all about self-promotion. That's all he's doing. He's trying to draw people back into the two-party paradigm because before he came along, uh, uh, Twitter was basically a shitlib, an elitist shitlib echo chamber. And the the part of it that I'm more interested in is what um, Primo Radical is covering, the way that uh, all these ex-FBI agents were working at Twitter. He was looking up their LinkedIn profiles and everything. Like these guys had 20 years, you know, at the FBI, and all of a sudden they want a career change and they move over to Twitter. You know, that's what scares me is that we have the intelligence um apparatus basically monitoring and controlling our speech and elon musk isn't going to do anything to make that any better he's just going to be drawing in the other side to to make them feel better i guess and my stance on it is i agree with matt taibbi when he said that why are we reporting the uh the news worrying about what the effect is going to be and i feel the same way about twitter why should anybody have to be monitoring and censoring that speech because they're worried about what the effect could be? The thing about it is we need to uh, put the, the accountability and the responsibility for that speech where it belongs 
and let people say what they want to say. I've been kicked off Twitter for like over a year now because I told Tom Hanks he was an asshole uh, for what he said about Julian Assange after the post. I told Megan McCain that she's a piece of shit as, of a human being. And I told Ben Shapiro, I, I sent him uh, the video that uh, some more news Cody Johnston did on him several times I sent it. And they considered that harassment. And so I, I never doxed anyone, never threatened anyone. <laughs> well, at least anyone. that's an eclectic range of um, antagonists. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I, I play uh, I play an even field. Also, uh, I was going to ask, did you want to know more about my dad and JFK? Because uh, I was going to oh, yeah. tell you. I remember my, you mentioning my, that, yeah. My dad was in the Marines with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Really? And he says that, <laughs> yes. And he says that he's the one that kind of suggested that uh, uh, JFK needed to be shot. And he hates him because he's, he was an elitist prick. Wait, wait, wait. Your dad that stole claims the election. That he's the one who suggested to Lee Harvey Oswald that JFK needed to be shot? Yes. <laughs> he, he mimed holding a rifle, saying that that was the only way that uh, anybody, any, any uh, common man could do anything about the political um, environment that they were living in. So does your dad actually claim that he inspired Lee Harvey Oswald to yes. do the yes. assassination? Yes. Huh. Although, I mean, it's not like he, he told them to go <laughs> has join he ever, the CIA. Has, he ever, been, has he ever like, uh, gone Cuba. public with that? Uh, no, no. He actually just lately, like in, within the last couple of years, he How told me that he want, he's 84. Hmm. And he didn't. he kept it a secret because he didn't want to be uh, – you know, charged or persecuted or, or what, blamed. What year, what year was this, Heidi, that your dad told him this? I don't know, but I did see the picture of him uh, of him in the Marines in the same platoon. Yeah, it would have been, like, I don't know, 61 or 2 or something like that. Looks yeah, like... I could look it up. My dad was born in 38, and he joined the Marines at 17 or 18. So I'm not, I don't, I wouldn't do cast dispersions on your dad or anything, but, uh, Kennedy, when Oswald was in the uh, Marines, Kennedy wasn't president yet. It was 56 to 59. So, oh, is that, okay. Hmm. Hmm. So he would have had to somehow get that suggestion to him, but even though Kennedy wasn't, wasn't president, so he would have had to foresee. The, well, I, maybe, maybe what they were talking about were just politicians, elitist politicians. Yeah. I don't know. Just the that. idea of assassinating the president in general <laughs> okay. or taking out, you know. So, uh, yeah. I, That's I, a good point, I, though. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask him about that. I, it never occurred to me. Yeah. I, I actually kind of had a hard time <laughs> believing a lot of the stuff. Uh, it, well, you know, it's like war stories. You don't know. Yeah, I mean, no offense. Again, no offense to your dad, but I mean, <laughs> would it shock you if like a thousand people have that same story? No, it would not shock me, not at all. Yeah. But I was just, I was just elaborating. Uh, last time I talked to you, I, I had mentioned that my dad hated Kennedy. And, yeah, and they just announced today that the uh, <laughs> there are still fourteen uh, four thousand four hundred files that were supposed to be disclosed in 2017 at the latest pursuant to the JFK Records Act, which Biden has once again announced today that he is delaying the disclosure of. So, Of course. Of course. You can't What's actually the... uh, let people know the truth of anything. Well, this is so cr well, crazy. What's the, how, how do they justify this? Well, in 1992, after the Oliver Stone movie, JFK, which is amazing that that actually was the precipitating factor, but uh, Congress passed a law, you know, a binding statute that's in effect right now, requiring that within 25 years, the government disclose 
all relevant records related to the JFK assassination. And there are some criteria for postponing the disclosure of those files within the statute. So uh, in 2017, which was the 25-year mark, Trump delayed it for unknown reasons, invoking these exceptions around, you know, the standard stuff, national security, um, sources and methods, whatever. Um, It was assumed that it was at the behest of the CIA, which gets like a gets to review these records for potential compromising information and then they give a recommendation to the president. So Trump gave into it in 2017. Um, then last year, Biden gave a COVID excuse for why he couldn't release the remaining records. And then there was supposed to have been, between 2021 and today, a one-year intensive review of, like, you know, a, the final review of all remaining records to once and for all Get them out, if at all possible, right? Um, And they released some just today, uh, but there are still at least four thousand four hundred that are that continue to be redacted. Um, So we're now over five years past the statutory deadline of that nineteen ninety two act, and there are still thousands of records related to the JFK assassination that are still being withheld from disclosure, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, so there's no, I mean, there's no journalist out trying to dig deeper than just, oh, it fits under the exception. Like, there's no trying to... Well, yeah, I mean, there are, but there's only so much you can get. I mean, you can't FOIA them. Uh Uh-huh. Well, there's no speculation, there's no anonymous sources that they always have in government telling you this is what's going on or that's what's going on. There's no, like... Well, I mean, there's this one one journalist who's a former Washington Post journalist who's also been an editor and he's written books. And he was actually my editor for a brief period when I wrote for Salon years ago. His name is Jeff Morley. Um, And he's like a JFK assassination authority, but he's not like a conspiracy guy, really. It's all tethered to journalistic practice, um, which is sort of unusual in that um, domain. But he actually does a really good job with it. And his theory is that, um, and he talked about this about a week ago because it was coming up on the deadline. I mean, December 15th today was the deadline for when Biden was supposed to make his final decision. He just made it earlier today. And according to Jeff Morley, there are CIA personnel records related to one particular operative whose name is George Joannidis, Joannidis, it's like a Greek last name, who... um, had a covert operation underway in the summer of 63, so months, several months before the assassination, in, that it, it embroiled Lee Harvey Oswald. So in other words, Lee Harvey Oswald was involved in a covert CIA operation in the summer of 1963. And the release of this particular operative's files would shed additional light on it. Now, Morley doesn't suggest that it means that there was a conspiracy to actually kill Kennedy um, or that Oswald wasn't the shooter or anything, but that Oswald was involved in a covert covert CIA operation several months before the assassination. And those are some of the files that are still being concealed, uh, as um, was confirmed today. So that's one of the theories, anyway, going around. Well, if our government wants to have any shred or hope of credibility, they got to quit playing these games with these stupid limited hangout nonsense games. 
you know. All right. So, well, uh, thanks, Heidi. But thanks for taking my yep. call. All right. Uh, Joshua. Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for bringing me on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any questions about the um, Ukraine situation. I, I haven't really researched it that much. And um, yeah, I mean, that Heidi, your story about your uh, dad was kind of interesting. I mean, uh, definitely that photo of him and Oswald might could lend it at least a small amount of credence to his story. So that was pretty cool. Um, the only uh, thing I have to comment. Yeah, sorry, on he- sorry to interrupt, but Heidi, if you're still listening, send me the photo if you can. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Yeah, so, actually, go on. Go on. But, um, yeah, anyway, uh, about the Elon situation, um, you know, at, at this point, from what I've seen, at least in my timeline is, you know, I still see a lot of people able to criticize him and the bannings. Um, I'm just looking over the New York Times article now, and it seems like just as I'm reading it, I haven't finished it, but as I'm reading it, it seems like the only people who were banned either directly posted links or were linking to the account that was posting links. Um, And at the end of the day, I mean, I think the New York Times and mainstream media's position on doxing and and things of that nature um, is pretty clear. It's that they really don't care about it. I mean, this has been talked about a lot you know, whether it's Scott Alexander or what have you, um, it seems like they basically uh, have a sort of no holds barred view of personal information, which is that when the New York Times deals with you, you're not allowed to be pseudonymous or anonymous in any way, shape or form. I'm not totally sure why, Um, you know, they're trying to sell this idea of like, oh, you know, boohoo, look at all of us, we just got banned. But the thing is, is that I, I have a hard time having any sympathy over it because it's like, we should have a right to post on Twitter the exact coordinates of like Elon Musk's position. Um, I mean, maybe that is a slippery slope. I could totally see that. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to have any sympathy at all um, for that. I mean, I, I frankly just don't care that much. So, yeah, I mean, that that's what I have to say about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm definitely not advocating for the extension of sympathy to the New York Times or to even any of these individual journalists. That's sort of not the perspective I'm coming at it from. I'm coming at it from the perspective, like, not as a sort of meta-commentary on the equitable application of standards or expectations around doxing, but just around whether the rule itself makes sense and had, like passes what I kind of preliminarily call a rational basis test. And I do think that there has been lately a, a fair amount of concept creep happening around the concept of doxing. Like when doxing was first a thing, like I remember it being like the actual sort of malicious posting of genuinely private personal information in order to like personally victimize someone uh, or like the weaponization of the posting of personal information. And of course, it's hard to like ever precisely define it, but I, I do notice that a lot of times now any posting of personal information that somebody doesn't like, even if it's like could, be, could very conceivably be justified reporting, is called doxing and therefore called, made out to be this like grave infringement. Like, I'm sorry, it could conceivably be the, be the case that there could be a newsworthy story and the richest man in the world, or the, now the second richest man, I guess, Musk, 
flying from point A to point B, and that information being used in a story, that that actually does have news value, right? So any information that comes out through the FAA about Elon Musk's movements necessarily being doxing, I don't really accept. Um, I do accept that it could be used for potentially malicious purposes, but I don't know. Is the Federal Aviation Authority, like, doxing Elon Musk 24-7 because they post his movements? Right? So it's sort of weird. I mean... There is a slippery slope, or there is some concept creep here that I am wary of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. This one goes back to what we were talking about, Michael. It's not the. I mean, it's not the same because it's on the FAA website. I mean, it's on the website. That doesn't mean like, you know, giving it to people in like a certain environment where people are angry about Elon Musk, specifically, sort of encouraging them to go after. I mean, you know how to find the FAA on Elon Musk's, uh, you know, information on Elon Musk's uh, plane. I don't know. I don't know how to find it. Like, it would take me a little while to figure it out. And that's you could like, figure it out within about 10 minutes. Uh, 10 minutes is, like, actually a, a big deal. There's, like, a lot of things you can find in 10 minutes. And, like, if you just present it to people in Twitter and, like, they can see in one second, like, you know, it makes a big difference. Okay, I mean, but on principle, though, is, is the FAA doxing Elon Musk just by making that information publicly available? No, because it's not just about what's publicly available. It's it's the entire context. That's why rules don't work. That's why that's all subjective and arbitrary, as we talked about earlier. Because yeah, <laughs> it's not just the information. It's putting it together and it's putting it in a certain place. It's not just because it happens to be in, available somewhere else that means it's automatically not uh, not a kind of toxic or not kind of pernicious behavior. Yeah, I feel like I feel like we've landed on the crux of your like libertarian anarchism or whatever your political philosophy is because this of my is why rules don't, rules don't work rules don't work i mean yeah that's that's pretty much that's pretty much right enough that's a libertarian thing but uh yeah i think private institutions just sort of have to do but i think that's true for government too i think at some extent it's got to be uh arbitrary i don't know if that's very libertarian it's just sort of legal you know they call there's this thing called legal realism uh so it's, it's something like yeah. that yeah all right, well, uh, thanks, Joshua. Let's go to uh, Andrew. Hey there. Hey. I was banned uh, on Twitter for telling uh, Caitlin Johnstone what I thought of Simon Tisdall's article calling for a full-on military engagement between NATO and Russia, which is I told Caitlin Johnstone on Twitter that Simon Tisdall should be thrown in a trench and that he was a fucking demon. And I was banned for targeted harassment, even though, as far was as I'm this? concerned, Simon Tisdall, oh, it was uh, somewhere between six and seven months ago within okay. the last year. And uh, it's just funny because Simon Tisdall never even knew about it. Can you, uh, so uh, when you're banned, like, are you permanently banned? Oh, yeah, I'm permanently banned. I was uh, suspended before because I told, I was saying, Mitch McConnell, uh, I hope you choke on your donor money. And that was uh, seen as uh, incitement to violence, funny uh, enough, because apparently that was a literal threat that I was hoping. that. How do they keep you off? Could you have a new email address and you could just go ahead? Well, I think you need a phone uh, phone number. Associated but can't, can't you try appealing it now? now I mean, I a lot of people who are banned have gotten reinstated. Every Twitter account has to, uh, uh, has to verify their phone number. Is that right? I believe that's correct. And so, so if you got a new phone I could number, get around you could do it. it. I could yeah. get around it if I wanted to. But um, Wait, so you have tried getting it reinstated since Musk took over? Correct. Uh, Musk and took no over. dice? After he announced his so-called general amnesty, I put in an appeal and I put in an argument saying, uh, one, this isn't 
abuse and harassment targeted at him, first of all, because it wasn't even directed at him, and it's not abuse or harassment. And two, uh, if I'm banned for this, then how how can his article calling for an incitement to violence, which is what that is, is you're calling for a military escalation where other people are going to fight a war, literally an incitement to violence, how can that be allowed on the site when my comment isn't? And I have gotten nothing from Twitter support, and I don't think I'll get anything. Or if I do, I'm sure I'll be denied. And I've seen other people that have put in requests and been denied. So it's a case-by-case basis. Yeah. And like, remember when Trump out. threatened on Twitter to blow up ancient cultural sites in Iran? Right. And nobody even had a notion that that would be against the Twitter rules because, you know, there's all, there's this mysterious exemption for all forms of state violence. <laughs> And you know, that never counts. Uh, but, you know, if you have a few dopes breaking some windows of the Capitol, you know, that's the violence to end all violence and requires purging. Yeah, I just thought that was a funny note. And since you both thought it was so subjective, I wondered if uh, you both were the Twitter council, if I would have been banned. No, if I were on the Twitter uh, council, you'd be permanently instated for the rest of time. Even if you yeah. call for genocide or whatever. <laughs> Chief expert. Awesome. Yeah. Caitlin Johnson, to say that guy is sucks and his article sucks, that seems really bad. You said I have to throw him. <laughs> you know, I think throw people is a big, like, I got suspended for saying throw, throw boobers off a cliff. Or throw, Ameri- yeah. you know, we're going to throw Americans. Okay. I think it's, it's maybe an automated thing where it's like you throw people. Throw. See, and I Hitler, thought- uh, I mean, Andrew, as far as I'm concerned, I just said Hitler, my mistake. Throw Hitler. Hitler. Ruined my joke. <laughs> I was going to say that you could be the number one Hitler fan account and you would still be allowed on Twitter if I was on the moderation council. That's good to know. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm sure that'll come into play later in my life. Um, yeah, I think that might have been throw or trench that they might have thought I was trying to like imply he should be shot in the head or something. I'm, I was implying he should have to be on the front line fighting, obviously. Anyway. The actual thing I called in was Twitter and uh, Ukraine on the Twitter thing. Last week we called, I called in and talked to you guys and I said I wanted to hear more about FBI involvement and government involvement and have you guys been keeping up with Matt Taibbi and what he's been saying about the uh, proof now that we have government censorship of American speech through these uh, meetings and uh, Slack channels where they're flagging what the yeah. I, I've seen, I saw the first couple of Twitter files. I don't know if there's been more. But. Well, it's not a matter yeah. of Taibbi just saying it. It's that now he has evidence of... That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah direct coordination between DHS and FBI with, uh, in particular, Yoel Roth, who is like a parody, to so take censorship action. I mean, so it's something that everybody had pretty much assumed would have been underway, but now there's more details filled in, and now it's basically yeah. confirmed, which is I, why, you know, I was going to say to Heidi before... Whatever criticisms I might have with Musk now, and I do have some reservations about these latest bannings, at least barring more information about what the violation supposedly was. But, I mean, it is because of Musk that we now have that information around the intimate connection between the security state and Twitter moderation decisions. It's just totally pure luck that this guy is eccentric enough to have wound up unearthing this. And I feel like I'm living in la-la land. This is, to me, like the biggest story since Snowden broke his shit about the NSA. I mean, this is clear-cut evidence of and, – and there's going to be more unearthed. And Matt said that more is coming, and they're looking specifically for how exactly the whole system of flagging 
works and the whole circular system. And it's not just that there are agencies, many, it's not just the FBI, it's all kinds of agencies. It seems like a free-for-all, but they don't just put in requests and flag things and target things. They get data back from these, uh, at least Twitter, and we can just assume this is happening at Facebook and Google. I feel like at this point, that's a completely safe assumption. So they're getting data back. So they're like harvesting data, looking at it, the government's looking at it, and then putting out requests based on that. And then these corporations are complying this is like the biggest story in American free speech in like ever in my life, as far as I'm concerned. And it seems like, well, no yeah, I, mean, I agree in that, in that it, 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 it enables like the hyper precise micro targeting by the security state apparatus of private citizen speech. Yeah. Like, it's not just sweeping NSA style data collection methods. It's, and it's not, it's, it's hyper targeted. It's not in pursuit of a crime. It's just doing censorship. They're literally just doing censorship. Yeah. So no, I mean, I, I agree. And, and, and you know, I wish I had been more attentive to this even before the Twitter files. I mean, this goes going back to late 2020 when um, Yoel Roth gave a sworn statement to the FEC. Um, I think it was the FEC. Uh, I may be wrong about the exact body that he gave his testimony to. I'm pretty sure it was the FEC. Where he was saying that in the lead up to the Hunter Biden laptop moderation decision that was, you know, semi-reversed pretty quickly. But in the lead up to it, he had been personally meeting on a weekly basis with the FBI, with DHS, and with DNI, the, the Director of National Intelligence's office, which primed him to be on the lookout for supposedly hacked materials related to Hunter Biden. So the whole criticism that was directed at Taibbi when the first installer of the Twitter files came out, where people were saying, oh, this is a nothing burger because there's no evidence of a direct government intercession to, you know, demand, to demand the censorship. It, the whole point was that it wasn't necessary for the government to do that because they've already, they had already primed the relevant decision makers, at least in the form of Yoel Roth, to take the censorship action the minute that it came across the radars. Yeah, I think it goes even beyond that. I agree, but I think that it goes even beyond that. I think that they're literally getting lists from these government organizations of targets to censor. And it's not just about, you know, the whole thing about pre-flagging the Biden stories, hack materials and the warning from the Senate coming that essentially you can't allow misinformation or we're going to break you up and regulate you being the the threat from one hand of the government while the FBI and DHS and DOD and whoever else, NIH, whoever, uh, not NIH, obviously, maybe in the UK. Anyway, the, the whole point is that the, they're all giving them lists of information. It's direct orders. And they're just, I mean, to say that this isn't a violation of the Constitution is insane to me or that there's some kind of permission to do this. This is obviously a big story to me. I don't know. And then I had one thing on Ukraine, if you're uh, yeah. Yeah, done with that. The, uh, there's an interesting article in The Economist called uh, An Interview with General Valery Zaluzhny, Zaluzhny, head of Ukraine's armed forces. Uh, I think I might have. I think I might have seen this, or I think I might I have saw, seen the I quote. S- you say the Economist. I saw one in Time Magazine with the oh, same guy. Shoot. 
Okay, am I back? Sorry about that. I think I dropped out. Yeah, yeah, you're back. I think I saw this guy being quoted where... Is it where he's talking about how um, basically... Uh, I don't know, you, you summarized it because maybe uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the wrong... Okay, I'm afraid to go back to the article now, but it's... Uh, did you hear the title before I dropped out? No, no, you no, dropped I out, I guess. So. It, it, okay, it's uh, it's in The Economist, and it's uh, an interview with the leader of Ukraine's armed forces, uh, Valery Zaluzny, and he's basically talking about, uh, the quote is, I need like, I need 500 tanks, I need six to 700 infantry fighting vehicles, I need millions of artillery shells, and we're not getting that. That's a paraphrase, obviously, because I don't have it in front of me, but the numbers are like 300 tanks, 700 IFEs. We need millions of shells, and we're being told we're going to get 50,000 shells, and we're going to not get these pieces of armor. We have two, two brigades. So these Patriot missiles, I think, ultimately, you have to think of this war from the U.S. perspective as a money opportunity, just a business opportunity and an opportunity to hurt Russia, not an opportunity to really help Ukraine win. So these Patriot missiles, it doesn't matter really how long it takes for them to get there. So they could just train them for months and then let them get in. It's not going to matter in the long run because Illusion himself is coming out and saying, I'm not getting what I need to win this war. He's saying I can beat this opponent, but this is what I need. So I don't know. I don't see it as a, a, any, a serious escalation unless there's U.S. soldiers operating it, which I don't see the need for because what's the rush? They don't really care how many Ukrainians die. What is, are we like really concerned while we see them get slaughtered in Bakhmut? How many Ukrainians die? Are are we going to rush U.S. soldiers in to man these things? I don't think so. At the most, maybe contractors from, you know, ex-NATO military background that have some training. But that's not going to. It's not going to be direct intervention. It doesn't make any sense to do that. And yeah, they're not giving what, what they need to win. Yeah, I mean, when when I call it a, an escalation, I don't want to overstate what I'm saying. I'm just calling it an incremental intensification of the U.S. military commitment to Ukraine. I mean, so not right. that it would be a decisive precursor to all-out NATO Russian war or anything, but sure. you know, it's just one of these you know, gradual incremental escalations that have been happening for 10 months. They're finding um, new ways to exploit it. You're, I agree with you. Yeah, and it, it actually ties in, now that you mention it, to, there was an article in Foreign Policy magazine uh, a couple days ago where a bunch of anonymous congressional aides were complaining that the U.S. is holding back weapons to Ukraine on the basis that it has to retain by statutory obligation a certain number of munitions and so forth in, in its stockpile in case of a potential war with Russia. So the what's being complained about is that because the U.S. has to have this contingency plan for direct war with Russia, they're holding back on sending Ukraine what it needs to actually fight the act of war against Russia. So it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of, I mean, I guess, I don't know what party they are, but it's a bunch of anonymous congressional aides grousing about um, Biden being too... too uh, not being uh, effusive enough in sending Ukraine what it needs. Um, so that's consistent yeah. with what this, um, this general said. If you, if you read these articles, you can see that we're just milking a cow here. It's pretty obvious to me. Uh, anyway, did you see Donald Trump's big announcement? That's my last thing. 
Did you see that? Big yes, I did. Um, yes, I tweeted on that. Is I that saw that, and I wasn't thing? sure if it was a joke, but I guess that I was thought it was a joke too. It's real, and the NFTs suck. <laughs> did you see these pictures? They're just terrible. They're boring. They're not even good. They're not even uh, making liberals mad. I think just, that it, Trump is getting sadder and sadder. I, I, yeah, I think it? his his fan base are. You know, his fan base are like, it's shrinking, but it's like, it's just like cultists who are just like too stupid to like, you know, just like, you know, they worship the guy and they've been with them and they're old and they're, you know, scam. I think, you know, he's, yes. he's this is the first time I've, I've had doubts that he might, you know, that he might actually not run. Oh, well, I guess he's officially running. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's running is, so now, guess, technically. Yeah, he followed yeah, the paperwork. Yeah. But like, yeah. it made me think that like he's uh, you know he he might be like not even trying like he just wants to build exactly. fat well, fat I mean, I don't know cash in the chips. People yeah. said, I mean, people said that all throughout 2015. Yeah, no, 2015. I still think he's running. Yeah, I still think he is. Oh, it's just a it's just a money making operation. He just wants to sell Trump branded products. He's not actually running, even though he's running. I mean, that was yeah. every week no, that theory was being proposed. I feel like it just has massive loser energy this time around. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he used it's... to be good at not having that loser energy, right? He used to be very good at sort of uh, being in like you know the center of the news, but he's lost. I mean, he's lost it. He he's ha- you know he's the, he's he's uh, you know getting kicked off of Twitter. Like he can't go back because like you know if he gets he's... kicked out again, right? It's it's yeah. like you know, and I think he's afraid Elon Musk is going to overshadow him. He's emasculated. He's emasculated to return. Yeah. I think that's yeah. Well, Musk I, is playing the role on Twitter that Trump used to play. I know right. it's amazing the extent to which liberals need like a guy, you know, who's saying politically incorrect things yeah. to be like the center of their universe. It went right? from it's Trump, funny. Trump to Rogan to Elon. But Michael, have you seen <laughs> NFT pictures? Have you seen? Uh, I, I saw. I saw what like the main one with the. Superman like thing. I don't there's know. another one where he's like wearing a cowboy outfit, and there's another one where he's just pointing with his hand on his hip. This, if this was 2016 <laughs> energy Trump, this would be like him on Pelosi's desk shitting in the middle of the January 6th insurrection, and people would buy that NFT. But he's well, not maybe that. I'll maybe I'll bid on these just to be a contrarian. It's ninety nine dollars, so have fun. All right, thanks, Andrew. Uh, Phil, you're up. Phil, are you there? Got to unmute. Bottom left-hand corner. Mute button. Phil going once. Phil going twice. I do enjoy talking to Phil, so I'd be disappointed if he's not able to unmute in time. All right, Phil, unfortunately, if you can hear us or if you're still there, uh, please come back and we'll uh, try to get to you. Uh, Gator. Hey, gents, how you doing? Good. Yeah, good, thanks. Um, on the on the Twitter stuff, um, yeah, I was spoke to Taibi on the Sorota show, um, some absolute shambolic left nonsense, where they had, they had deliberately instantaneously taken attack of attacking um, basically Matt, Taibi on an ad hominem basis. To wait, 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 hold on a second. Hold on a second. So this was files. this was Taibi appearing on Sorota's call-in show or some other show. Yeah, that leave leave a bullshit show. When yeah. was this? Uh, yesterday. 
Oh, okay. Who's, who's the Sirota and, guy? And, so and Taibi was being attacked. David Sirota, I mean... Uh, oh, I know that guy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And Taibi yeah, was so being attacked by the callers? Yeah. What they were doing was they were wrapping up an ad hominem attack under the... Under when you say the they, was Sirota joining in on this attack? Yeah, it was somebody else. J- uh, Jordan Uhl, I think, was his name. Okay, but I don't know yeah, him, yeah so. I know him, right? Um, and what, what they did was they were basically saying, hey, Matt, but people are asking, people are asking, not us, um... How how come it was you who got access to um, the files? And don't you think there's a bit of a, something dodgy about the fact that you've just been invited by the world's richest man to um, come and have a look? And, and doesn't that make it? Doesn't that basically suggest that you're involved? You're all you're automatically less legitimate because you're essentially doing Elon Musk's bidding, right? And they were trying to sort of was Jordan all that, a host or was he just a caller? He was one of the panel, so okay. there was about three or four of them, and um, you know, running this, running these right. kind of questions, right? Trying, trying to, trying to suggest that they were only asking every man questions. The question on everyone's lips is, which is, you know, but actually, it was just an ad hominem attack. Taibi laughed it off and said, "No, this is bullshit." And 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 they even went as far as saying, "Well, why, why are you even really interested in this professionally? I mean, doesn't this?" What does this say about about um, you know wh- why why were you interested in doing it? Aren't you just playing Elon Musk's game for him, right? And and Matt Taibbi said, "I'm a journalist. I don't really give a shit what 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 Elon Musk's um, exactly. pol- politics are. I he I got, deal he with got the, the primary the story put in front of me. Elon Musk. The way I put it is, Elon Musk could have invited Taibbi to take those emails and other Slack documents, whatever." Directly out of his ass, like like yeah. Taibi could have re- put his fist directly into Elon Musk's rectum to get the materials, and it would make no difference if he's getting the materials. Yeah, and then and then it's 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 a completely bullshit deflection from the content, right? And I was just listening to this, thinking this is almost shambolic that these these two people are running this line of questioning, thinking nobody's going to know what they're doing. It, I mean, fortunately, Matt just pushed back immediately straight away right but the the, the files i mean the, the contents of the files themselves also a little quick point on that sorry to import- interrupt but i mean think of what Taibi's doing Taibi is willingly subjecting himself to what he has to know what he almost certainly did know is going to be antagonistic lines of questioning for an open forum or relatively open forum about the conditions under which he's been subject to, in order to carry out this reporting. Now, yeah. does the New York Times ever do that? Does the Washington Post ever do that? Does your average CNN hack ever do that? No. This is a, a going above and beyond in terms of journalistic transparency, and yet Taibbi and even Barry Weiss, I guess, is still going to be held to an even higher standard for not being transparent enough, even though he's made way more disclosures than would ever be expected of your standard New York Times journalist who every single day agrees to even shade, I guarantee you, even shadier conditions in order to get information or to anonymously quote some official. I mean, that's the hilarious thing. I mean, not not that everybody has to be a journalist, right? But the non-journalist criticizing Taibbi, I guess even as well as the journalists who I guess don't do a whole lot of reporting, I'm not saying I'm the most intrepid investigative reporter, right? But it always requires some degree of conditions in order to get 
you know, privileged information into the public domain from a source. The only difference here is that Taibbi actually was forthright in specifying what the condition was, as did mm. Barry Weiss, which is that it had to be posted first and foremost on Twitter, which is like not that grave of a condition because it apparently had nothing to do with the actual content. Yeah, and also, I mean, the fact that Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi and the other, the other people who've done the reporting are different flavors of journalists, of different political bents, actually neutralizes the ability for you to run ad hominem attacks because they're not all leftists, they're not all liberals, they're not all progressives, are they? They're different flavors of journalism, which is, which is, which is I think, the smarter thing about who Musk has picked to do this reporting because they're all you can't take them all down with that same attack. Well, basically. I mean, you can actually, because absurdly enough, Taibi has been sort of conflated into this category of, I don't know, anti-woke, vaguely right-wing, anti-liberal journalist that Barry Weiss also fits into, and which, you know, I've been put in that category as well, which doesn't mean anything, because anybody who's at all resistant to just parroting the latest left liberal piety is therefore kind of inherently some sort of right-wing journalist now. That's what right-wing means. I mean, Weiss and Taibbi actually are different flavors of journalists, but that's not going to insulate them from being conflated together as this certain ideological faction that can be dismissed yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, but um, somebody else, I can't remember who now, some, it, the account's called Name Redacted, it, it delivered a list of 15 former FBI agents who are all employed in Twitter in significant positions, right? And that's, that's uh, I, I chucked it in the chat if you if you wanted to find it, but um, which again, just tells you what, what you need, what we what people need to know about the perception management tools, the state co-opted perception management tools of Twitter and Facebook and all the rest of it. And um, but with regard to Musk, I've said this before, he, he is playing his own game and he has a, he has his own agenda. But Matt Taibbi has said, well, I don't give a shit on in the context of what I'm doing. But the true thing is, is, is in, in terms of his claims about being a free speech absolutionist or absolutist, sorry, um, is to simply for everyone to go on Twitter and troll the fuck out of Elon Musk until you find the bits that Elon Musk doesn't like and won't tolerate. And then you go, well, I mean, and that's an easy game for the for the for the left to play, you know, is to just bait Elon Musk until he gets pissed off. And um, if that if that means if that means the jet thing is the, is the, is his first stumbling block, that's not a particularly strong stance, is it? He doxed himself in real time when he posted a picture of his own kid in San Francisco next to a fucking um, landmark, right? I mean, it's like he's just done that to himself. Wait, wait, when, so did, when, did, he, wait, when did he do that? In his feed, within the last week, again, I put that in, a, in the link, he put a picture up of saying little X in, in the heart of San Francisco next to some heart um, monument. And, he, and so, so he just doxed himself, right? <laughs> okay. which is not particularly clever. But um, the whole the whole Twitter files thing is is it, it, the key the key to it is the lack of reporting around it in the mainstream, which tells you that it is actually really of significant value. If they yeah. won't talk about it, then it is what you think it is, which is a fucking expose of a sham. The only reporting that's been done on it in the mainstream outlets has really just been to denigrate Taibbi and Musk, and I guess also. Barry Weiss. 
I mean, they're yeah. not actually reporting on any of the material. They're reporting yeah, exactly. on it as a media story in order to denigrate the participants. But, but the, and the, problem, the problem now is that Jack Dorsey has now provably lied to Congress, and the only defense that he has is a semantic one where he said, well, it wasn't untrue of me to say that we don't shadow ban, because we don't shadow ban. We only visibility filter, and they're not the same thing, because they're not the same words. And that's a significant problem. But also, Dorsey well, is now... I actually, I'm, I'm not sure that would actually constitute lying to Congress, because, I mean, it is true that Twitter, in its actual statements of policy going back to 2018 did state that they were engaged in visibility filtering. So when Dorsey says we're not doing shadow banning, we're doing visibility filtering, I don't know that, I mean, I don't think that's a lie. The issue is, okay, so what are the criteria that, that goes into determining what content to filter the visibility of? But if that results in, the, in, the, in a practical shadow ban for some people, then, then, then he has technically lied. Nah. Because like, when they were openly stay, saying they're doing visibility filtering, then they're going to filter the visibility of certain content that meets certain criteria that would justify, in their minds, downgrading it algorithmically. So that's, but in the con but, but shadow banning is just the pejorative way to refer to that. Well, yeah, but I don't think he admitted to visibility filtering in the congressional hearing, did he? I, he must have, because it was in the... I mean, you could go find the blog post from 2018... Uh, where they specifically state that they're doing visibility filtering. Okay. I mean, the, the revelation from the Twitter Files 2.0 that Barry Weiss posted wasn't the fact that they were doing visibility filtering. It was the arbitrary nature of it and the caprice, caprice of it and how it even ensnared, you know, guys like Jay Baratria, I think that's how you pronounce the name, you know, a Stanford professor who just kind of modestly deviated from COVID orthodoxies and that sort of thing. Like, it wasn't the mere fact of the visibility filtering. It was the, it was the matter in which it was carried out. Mm, okay. Um, but I think that Dorsey is running, a, is now setting himself up in a, in a protective stance in a little bit like the Bankman-Fried attempt, which is essentially saying that, um, hey, yeah, okay, so some things kind of went wrong, I could have done a better job. And he, effectively, he's beginning to plead a kind of ignorance and competence argument as a CEO of Twitter. It's like, how, how's that going to work? Well, you know, Dorsey's a complicated case because I actually do think that he is pretty well-intentioned. Like, he, Dorsey's the one who facilitated Musk taking Twitter over. I mean, he was in direct contact with Musk, endorsed the concept of Musk buying Twitter and taking it off the stock market and instituting reforms because Dorsey came to believe that Twitter had grown too rapidly and had too much bureaucracy wrapped up on a, in it and was uh, not on a sustainable course in terms of preserving speech, which Dorsey himself had said at one point was the main objective of Twitter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, Dorsey's sort of a, he's kind of a paradoxical case. I don't, that's why I'm, I'm not really willing to just declare that he knowingly lied before Congress, right? Or, or to, like, have the least charitable interpretation of his acts. Um, I actually think, you know, uh, Dorsey actually was, I mean, remember, remember Dorsey appeared on Joe Rogan uh, yeah. at one point a couple of years ago with Tim Pool on it and, like, was taking feedback and, 
you know, pretty harsh, even harsh criticism for various moderation decisions. And so he kind of subjected himself to pretty unusual degrees of public kind of um, scrutiny for a while uh, at a time when it was almost unfathomable for Mark Zuckerberg, for example, to do something similar. So I don't know, it's sort of a mixed bag with, with Dorsey, but I, I do sort of, I am inclined to think that he actually is, wasn't really the problem at Twitter. It was more maybe his aloofness and the, the, the delegation of highly consequential decision-making to various other players. I mean, it, it is actually true that he was on some sort of bizarre meditation retreat uh, during January 6th when Trump was banned. So, But there's also, there's also information around Twitter's internal setup, which for anyone who's come from a technical background is a laughingstock, right? Even, even qualitative explanation of how Twitter's internal IT setup worked is embarrassing. So basically, they didn't have... Um, they, they only had the live system and they made changes straight into the live system, right? And they didn't have a test development environment where right. they would check stuff out before they implemented it. And they had this like level of uh, un, unfettered, uncontrolled, uncontained access to that, to that system, right? Which is just it shows you that like there was a level of amateurishness just at the technical level in Twitter, which... If I was a, if I was Jack Dorsey, I would struggle to defend that coming from a having experience in technical environments, right? And and that is important in itself because public perception of competence is always misplaced. People always believe that that companies and people running them know more than they do or do more than they do, and then it takes truth tr- truthy. Uh, outpourings to prove that that's not the case. I mean, other, other organizations I've worked in, in technical, highly critical safety environments, when you get into rooms with people and you talk to them about, well, why, why, are, why are these dangerous things happening? <laughs> the answers you get back from a lot of people are gobsmackingly shit, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that, is, has to, that has to be a part of this as well, is that people should not assume competence anywhere at any time of anyone, right, including well, the people doing the assessments of, like, government people. No, no congressional committee is ever going to have competence to really get to the heart of things, and that's before you take into account all of their vested interests in not getting to the heart of something, if you see what I mean. Well, that's an axiom I can agree with. Do not assume competence. <laughs> all right, thanks, Skater. Pleasure. Take it easy, man. All right, uh, John. Hey, guys, how are How's you? Um, I want to go over uh, two things. One in regards to the Patriot missile, and then just a little uh, aside on the Trump thing. With the Patriot missile, it's not something that's offensive or defensive. It's more about how you use it. All right. So exactly. think of it. So it's as, not inherently offensive yeah. or defensive one way or another. Right. right. So th- think about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. That's a, um, a martial art that is defensive, technically, whereas if somebody attacks you, you can like choke them out. And in many ways, the Patriot missile system is like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. If somebody attacks you, you can eradicate that problem. Now, if you took a professional fighter who knew Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then knew boxing, the boxing would be the offensive thing, and he wouldn't use the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in in defense. And that's like America. We have air superiority, so that's our offense, and we only use the Patriot missile system in the defense when we would be attacked like that, all right? But think about if you don't have offense. Think about a guy that just knows Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and not boxing. Well, that person might, you know, utilize it defensively if they were getting attacked, but they could also go and choke somebody out offensively should they want to. 
And with the Patriot missile system, you have a system where you're firing rockets extremely fast, 79,000 feet into the atmosphere, and it can go anywhere from 50 to 100 miles. So if you plot those things around your border, let's say the border of Belarus, you can have offensive capabilities going in to take out airplanes over another space, right? So it's really how you utilize it. In our case, it was completely defensive, but somebody like a Ukraine could utilize it in an offensive manner. And the other thing is, is that it's not entirely accurate. So like, you know, you'll have campaigns that have happened in different places around the world. Sometimes they're as accurate as like 80% at best. Other times it can go down as low as 40%. But now if you're looking at it in an offensive capability and you miss something, let's say 60% or, you know, 40% of the time you're missing something. Now you're throwing those missiles into, you know, uncharted territory in another country and that becomes problematic. So the fact that they gave them this is your right to call it an escalation. It is an escalation. And it can be considered defensive, but it can also be used offensively. And the other thing that one should know well, about you know, is John, that... Well, you know, just quickly, in light of that, you know, given the nebulousness of what it means to be an offensive weapon versus a defensive weapon, I almost kind of reject the whole idea of thinking about it in those bifurcated terms. You know, it just is an escalation in the technology that's been provided now. So whether it's used for offensive or defensive purposes, strictly speaking, is almost irrelevant. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, again, like, could Brazilian jiu-jitsu be utilized by um, a criminal to perpetuate an assault? Of course. Could it be utilized by somebody who is getting assaulted to protect themselves? Of course. But it itself is an escalation because you're now giving somebody the opportunity to do something that could very well be offensive and escalate things. Like, there's really no way around it being escalatory. Right. I mean, if you give a guy a gun, right, he claims he's going to use it for defensive purposes, there still could be some scenario that goes haywire or he, you know, has a mental breakdown or he somebody insults his wife or whatever, and he ends up using it in a spasm of emotion for offensive purposes. I mean, that's just a... Same thing with me. You give somebody a can of mace. It's supposedly for defensive purposes. But you could go and spray it in some fucking person's eye and it's offensive. You know what I mean? Like, it, it provides an opportunity to attack, like to hurt somebody. So like, and in a major way, like this isn't some bullshit thing that they're giving them. It's not like some hand, like, you know, a shoulder right. powered, which rock. is why I guess I, I, you know, again, I reject on principle, this like quasi mystical imputation of weapons with some sort of innately offensive or defensive, uh, offensive or defensive character, which is kind of a total misnomer, but that's the way it kind of gets used in sort of popular yeah, because they just are using rhetoric to trick people. Like, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, like, there is, there's nothing, like, dialectic or, like, specific I mean, about since it. the beginning of the, of the war, I mean, since the beginning of the U.S. dispatching so-called aid, it's always been defensive aid. Right, just a right. rhetorical trick. Exactly. 100%. And, you know, like, you know, for 2,500 years or so, Aristotle has told us since then, has told us how effective rhetoric is. It's a a trick that Russia employs as well. I mean, they characterize this whole war as defensive for their purposes. Of course. Absolutely. I mean, very, very rarely is a war making party going to overtly declare that they're engaged in offensive war. I'm sorry to, to, to do the trite Hitler invocation, but, you know, the invasion, right. uh, the, the uh, annexation of Sudetenland, for example, was defensive in terms of how they justified it. 
Right. And I mean, listen, like there, like there is gray, there's a gray area over it, but that's exactly why, like what you're saying is that there shouldn't be this bifurcated look at it. Like it's, you know, it's just offensive. It's just offensive. Like that's absolutely nonsense. You know, of course it could be used offensively. Uh, everybody admitted it up until like a week ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, and, uh, I appreciate yeah. the, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, analogy. I'll try to, <laughs> Maybe learn more about that so I can <laughs> use it myself. I haven't listened to enough Joe Rogan yet to have mastered the uh, subject. Uh, um, the other thing I want to say is, like, you know, as far as the Trump thing, like, I just, like, honestly, are we really going to just, like, feign, like, shock over, like, this is, Don like, Donald Trump has sold bar stools, steak, cheap cologne, eyeglasses, yeah, exactly. fucking, <laughs> your, your fire board games. I mean, it, like, it, is there anything more Trump than the fact that before Christmas he teased big stories? Of course not. And then, and then he dropped, like, uh, like, you know, so, like, I'm not shocked at all. I mean, it's just so on brand for him. Whether he was a he casino was, magnate. Right, right. So, like, I mean. Miss Universe. Right. So, like, I don't, like, I have no, I think, see, this is exactly how Trump has always been. Like, not one way or the other. Like, it's just, you know. In 2016. He literally sold a book. I mean, he went on a. I mean, he had a book that came out. I think it was in November of 2015, and he used his campaign to sell the book and make money. He just did it, and yet, but somehow, like that was the pinnacle of Trump's political savvy back in 2015, and now it's like radically different. I mean, it's silly. It's just, I just a. It, 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 I mean, you're right. It's just a pure continuation of what Trump has always done and what he's done to maximal political effect in the very recent past. Right, and all the Republicans are all pissed off because they thought it was going to be a major announcement and he was going to pick Harry Lake or somebody like that as their VP or something crazy or he was going to run for Speaker of the House. And he tricked them and they feel like assholes, you know what I mean? Yeah, I saw and, that rumor like, going around. Like, um, Mike Flynn said something on Truth Social where <laughs> Trump is going to announce his candidacy for Speaker of the House. Really? I mean, that was, right, that, that, that's idiotic. Right, so all the Republicans are all pissed off that they got played. And the Democrats are just like, fucking typical Trump, you know, he's such an asshole, he's enraged, he's unhinged. Well, I mean, there's also a faction of Republicans, and I guess, like, I don't know if I would exactly classify Richard as one of them. He's left now, so he can't uh, account for himself. But, I mean, there, there clearly is a big faction of the Republican punditocracy, the intelligentsia to the extent that exists. Um, activists and operatives, magazine types, think tank types who who um, don't want Trump to be the nominee. Same as they didn't want him in 2016. You know, they're either, you know, full-fledged for DeSantis or they're just full-fledged against Trump, which kind of makes them incidentally pro-DeSantis or somebody else. Um, and so, you know, they're going to have this inordinately pessimistic interpretation of everything Trump does as like reflecting his downfall. I would think that if you want to get the cross not to vote for Trump, what you would then say is to the people, hey, Trump did X, Y, or Z that's very tangible. Not, hey, look at this Trump guy. He's selling trading cards before Christmas. Can you believe him? He must be losing his mind. Like, it's just so, like, the, the normal person's going to be like, yeah, that's what Trump does. He sells shit with his name on it. Yeah. You know, so it's just like. He sold, he sold those stupid hats. <laughs> I mean, that's how they became right. a thing. Right, like, more so than anybody else. Like, so, like, the average person that's, like, really got to put food on the table and has problems with that and their electric's going up and they you get their attention to try to get them not to vote for Trump, 
the last thing you should do is waste your opportunity by saying, did you see how he sold something with his name on it? Like, it just sucks. The it reminds me of a lot of progressive, quote unquote, activists and media types and operatives and whatever, convincing themselves in 2019-ish that Biden was dead in the water or he was, you know, uh, uh, you know, he was like a dead fish. Is that the right analogy? Well, like um, up until like uh, Iowa, kind of. Yeah, well, you, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, even even months before that, like even think back to like spring of 2019, very early in the primary process, the idea that Biden was a viable nominee was largely discounted by oh, yeah, almost everybody. I mean, I'm one of the few people that I know. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I did a whole essay for the Spectator arguing against that because you know, and it was almost a trivially obvious point to make, just that Biden had these incredibly obvious built-in advantages as a quasi-incumbent, meaning that he was a vice president for eight years for an extremely popular, among Democrats, president, and that afforded him with a whole range of extremely potent advantages going into a Democratic primary. And with Trump, he has all those same advantages Biden had, but even more so, right? Because he was the incumbent president. So it, we, we never have had the case where a, a, a single candidate would go into a primary with such overwhelming advantages. And yet lots of people want to conv- – because they, they want to wish cast him out of getting the nomination. And so they kind of con- convince themselves to believe a whole theory that allows them to overlook those obvious advantages. I mean, listen, I like, uh, you're right. Like, at 100, like, like going through like the process, like as myself as a Republican, like I didn't believe in Trump in 2016. I just, you know, I grew up in North Jersey. I'm not. I just couldn't go to that. I just thought, like, no fucking way is this guy for real, right? And so anyway, and uh, you dropped out, John. John, if you're there, you uh, your audio dropped out. Okay, you're back. Can you hear me now? Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. In, in, in 2016, I didn't vote for Trump. I voted for myself, all right, despite being a Republican. I just, it just, I thought he was a bullshit artist, okay? So when I watched the debates as a Republican and a knowledgeable one, I watched him destroy every candidate I thought and had convinced myself was going to destroy him, all right? I saw him who just, am I still here? Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're here. You're good. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, I saw him run through Jeb Bush. I saw him run through Marco Rubio. I saw him run through Ted Cruz. I saw him run through Chris Christie and everybody else, all of these people that I assumed were better than Trump. And what I realized then was whether he was going to be good, whether he was going to be a disaster, that he, speaking of rhetoric, is extremely talented. And it comes from just natural ability and the fact that he was on a TV show for so many years and he was able to executive produce and actually know what works and how to utilize rhetoric to to pin people and to to fluster them. And that advantage is just like that, like his speaking is one of his major advantages. But people tend to think of it as one of his like negatives because of like that whole like, oh, mean tweet bullshit. Well, yeah. And now for this cycle, he not only has that same just kind of performative advantage, he has the advantage of having the political cachet of a former president. I mean, you can't get any more formidable political cachet going into a party nomination process. I'm sorry, you can't. 
Um, am I, I saying it's a it's a it's a given that he'll win the nomination? No, I'm not. I mean, you can't predict the future with any degree of certainty that that kind of prediction would re- require. But I'll just say that he has way he's way more formidable going into the 2024 Republican primaries than Biden was going into the 2020 Democratic primaries. Oh yeah, 100. percent No, and I I mean I think that you can. You can wish all you want, but the reality is, is that these guys are like, DeSantis is going to have to get on stage with him and not lose his mind when Trump does Trump stuff. And like he's and the vast majority of Americans that would vote for Trump, they don't see it as a problem because they don't care about political elites. They were so pissed off at political elites and establishment that they went with Trump. So he can basically say or do anything and it's not going to affect him like the way that a lot of people like look at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost, I almost don't think that uh, how Trump will perform on the debate stage with DeSantis is really even the most relevant factor here. The most, re- the relevant factor here is how much support he has consolidated within the Republican Party, which he had none of when he first entered the race in 2016. Right? Oh, that's a very good point. Um, he has, ne- I mean, it's, it might not be a majority of the professional networks or whatever of the party, but it's way, 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 way more than he had in 2016. Yeah, and, yeah, zero. Yeah, I mean, he, like the RNC was his own personal political operation for four years. Um, and that's huge uh, for, uh, for a primary, right? I mean, the general election is another story. Uh, but for a primary, I think it's being uh, bizarrely underrated what kind of, like, the unprecedented level of formidability that he has. Because, again, a lot of people in, like, the the opinion-making class in the Republican Party don't want Trump. So they kind of just will overemphasize his perceived liabilities and uh, underemphasize underemphasize his advantages. Yeah, and I'm going to go down the next person on, but, like, literally, I've heard very people that I know who are rational, okay, and smart people, today, whatever reason, ah, it's over for for Trump, he he sold a a trading card at Christmas, you know, like, like, our level has to, we really, as a, just as a society, from every party, all of us, have to, like, kick it up enough, you know, with our, like, critical... So it wasn't over when he got impeached twice, it wasn't over when the FBI (laughs) raided... Mar-a-Lago. Um, it wasn't over for a billion other reasons, but now it's over because he did a dumb little announcement to sell trading cards. Yeah, to sell Trump trading cards. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that was it. That was a fucking yeah, shit. That makes that perfect sense. All right, thanks, John. All right. Uh, all right, hey, uh, Jenny, you're up. Hey, Michael. Hi. I wanted to go back to what you said about Flynn because I noticed Michael Flynn said, you know, we might be getting a run for the speakership. And so I wondered if his announcement today was going to be tied to that because we've been talking about it in conservative forums for the past few months. You don't have to be a member of the House to be the Speaker of the House. Constitutionally, he could do it. I think he'd be a banger of a Speaker of the House. And um, I I think he could do that for two years and then run again in 2024 because constitutionally, again, he can be a total of 10 years. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see Biden and Kamala Harris uh, sent packing over the next year or two because they, uh, the, the crimes are coming out. And if they're prosecuted, guess who becomes speaker? I mean, guess, who be- <laughs> guess who becomes president? It's the well, speaker. 
that, I have to say, seems like a far-fetched scenario. But who knows? You can't roll anything out. I don't see the political logic for Trump actually trying to become Speaker of the House. It seems like there's a political logic behind him having an ally in Kelly, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House rather than himself. Um, so, yeah, that just seemed like Mike Flynn spitballing. I mean, Mike Flynn has said a lot of wacky stuff that never came to pass. Um, so... I mean, which, which, which is a bit unfortunate for his purposes because he actually has a legitimate story to tell in terms of being wronged by the Russia fiasco, Russia investigation fiasco, where he was, you know, more or less entrapped by extremely overzealous FBI agents into quote unquote incriminating himself. You don't remember the whole saga. And uh, he's sort of used that to develop a bit of a weird blustery platform where He's doing all kinds of strange prayer events and well, rattling off to, about he, stuff that like people take a bit too seriously. He had to mortgage his house to pay his legal bills. Yeah, I know. And when you get to that level of prosecution and harassment, you know, uh, you, you, you have a tendency to turn to the Lord. He's been very vocal about his uh, spirituality. I'm, I'm wondering what got lost in the shuffle today, though, with this NFT thing by Trump is is his speech. Did you watch it? The one on free speech? It was excellent. Oh, no, I, I didn't even know he gave one. Where was this? What was the circumstance of the speech? I'll have to look it up. Well, there's, he's a troll. You know, he's, oh, I'm in a big announcement tomorrow. This NFT comes out and all these crazy cards and the media is like, nothing burger. Oh, this is a joke. He's losing his mind. Well, at the, on the same day, he gives this great speech. I, I put it on my, my sub stack. I put a link in the chat if you want to look at it little seven minute speech on his bullet point plan to deal with free speech very thoughtful sober excellent in my opinion and also today peter Thiel. nobody's talking about Thiel's speech did you see it again no. talking talking about free speech and the media is so willing to be like cats chasing the little laser light that they can't tell the real story that and we're all laughing at them you know, the Trump supporters are laughing at the media, just chasing their tails. So Trump shared a video with the New York Post, and that's how he put the video out. I mean, I'm assuming he also posted it on Truth Social, right? It this is why Trump everywhere. really, for his own political sake, should come back on Twitter. Because yeah, then I would have everywhere. seen this video. I saw it, but you, yeah. have to go, you have to go look a little bit, you know. Right. But again, it's an excellent speech. Short, concise, very thoughtful. And I personally think this is what he was talking about when he said big announcement tomorrow. But he's a troll. He loves to troll the left. He loves to troll the journalists. And so even you and Richard are here talking about, you know, what did Trump say? Oh, it's so stupid. And it's like, well, you know, you got to realize. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> and he's a jokester. Richard did. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, Richard's a guy who, you know, has a DeSantis fetish. Well, I am a Trump supporter. I love the guy. I love his personality. I love his style. And when Richard says stuff like, oh, the only people who still support Trump are the crazies and the cultists and the, the older people, I take a umbrage to the old thing because I'm a senior citizen. But, you know, I I love. Are you? I am. Oh. I am. I would have thought I would have I wouldn't have thought thought so, which I guess is a compliment to you. No, I'm a grandma. And oh, okay. I, uh, I think he is exactly what we needed on the world stage and I look very much forward to him coming back and there are a whole bunch of people who agree with me so for Richard to just say with a broad brush oh it's just the crazies who still love Trump 
no, no. Well, what do you think of the people? I mean, what do you think of my theory that a lot of this is driven by, you know, Republican media types and commentators and operatives and so forth, basically trying to pump up DeSantis, so therefore, like, taking the most uncharitable interpretation of everything Trump does in service of sort of wish-casting DeSantis to the nomination. Oh, I agree with that, and I, I think... DeSantis would be an awesome president. To me, that's not really the point, you know. And I do think there's a long history of people on the right saying whatever they think the journalist class wants them to say so they can get on Fox News and CNN and, and even perhaps get hired by those companies. And so, Well, I don't think DeSantis' history is angling to get on CNN. He's angling to get to the top of the heap of the conservative media environment. I'm talking about the journalists who are pro DeSantis. Okay. You know, those guys are vying for jobs and posture and position before the 2024 election. And so they're going to be out there beating the drum that Trump's done. But you know, that's what we've heard for the last seven years. Everything the man has done. Oh, he's done. It's over. And you know, he just keeps laughing at everybody. And that's why I love him. Well, that speaks to why I'm not willing to write him off because he sold a bunch of trading cards before Christmas, as John was talking about. (laughs) All right. uh, Thanks, Jenny. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in once again. And I'll leave you with my rendition of chestnuts roasting on an open fire, but Ukraine theme. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. No, no, no. Here's the new version. Patriot missiles roasting on an open fire. Patriot batteries nipping at your nose. And that's as far as I've gotten so far. All right, everybody. Uh, We'll do it again probably the same time next week unless the spirit moves me and I do another.